decentralized broadcast network with no governing body of any kind and is produced and distributed by a loosely affiliated ever-growing network of rogue independent content creators this forum does not will not and shall not have any one location rss feed platform or channel but shall be shared and multiplied as nature dictates WTF Forum. The hosts do not give financial, legal, medical, or any kind of advice. Opinions are their own. This broadcast contains foul language and dangerous ideas. If you need a trigger warning, you are in the wrong place. Now enjoy the show. Nikola Tesla knew of the Earth Ring like a We now know that cancer is vulnerable between the frequencies of 100,000 hertz and 300,000 hertz. The guys that created the religious symbols know all this stuff. These guys knew all this stuff. We live in an electromagnetic universe. This is what we are told, where everything spins and vibrates. And the electromagnetic universe is actually a subtle deception. You'll understand as we go why I say this. It's a very subtle deception, a very important subtle deception. Because it's not the electromagnetic universe that we live in. It's the magnetoelectric universe that we live in. And just twisting those two around would have given us a very different perception while we grow up about the world that we live in and the universe and this, this reality of us. If we don't think of it as the electromagnetic but the magnetoelectric, huge consciousness shift in growing up with that kind of thinking. Everything has its own specific frequency, as we mentioned before. Prime resonance frequency. Everything vibrates at its own frequency. That's how we can manipulate things with frequency and sound and resonance. All comes to the same thing when you start breaking it down. Sound and resonance are also the common links of all creation. In Christianity, we have the word. We have the Om in Hinduism, the Egyptians that sang the universe into creation. And my favorite, the aboriginals, that believe the, uni- the world was sung into creation with three sacred songs or brought into creation with three sacred songs, which is the equivalent to the Holy Trinity. And we start hearing, start seeing the, the whole important structure of, of music and, and resonance and, uh, and chord structures, harmonic resonance in music. We get the six days of creation very obviously become visible in sacred geometry. And the six aspects of Om show us cymatic patterns, 
And the six aspects of the all-seeing eye of Horus shows six very obvious resonating ratios that tell us that all these ancient cultures understood sound resonance and frequency and it's encoded in all the things that they did. Sound is the source of all creation and it's all about coherence and harmonic resonance, even in our bodies. If our, the cells of our body are not in coherent harmonic resonance, our cells are in dis-ease, in disease, and that's how we get sick. And if we're not resonating with the earth frequencies, the natural earth frequencies of Gaia, we are in dis-ease with the Mother Earth that we live on and walk on, and that's why we get sick. Hans Jenny's beautiful documentary called Cymatics uh, in the 60s will show you exactly how sound is pretty much behind everything in creation. We've already looked at sound manifesting in physical form. This is the quickest and easiest way for us to comprehend once again how this untouchable, invisible thing called sound can manifest in physical form. That little, that little thing on the metal plate with the sand on the metal plate on that video. That's just probably the quickest way for us to say, okay, sound can manifest physical shapes. And sound also inspired religious symbols because the guys that created the religious symbols know all this stuff. These guys knew all this stuff and they know they all connected to the ancient bloodlines. And some of these beautiful images of the cymatic patterns, when you drill into it, you get that perfect cross in a circle of the source of the sound. And that's it. The source of the sound is this beautiful cross in a circle. And this is why most of the religious movements have the cross in a circle as their symbol, recognizing that the source of, of everything in creation is sound, the sound of the Creator. And um, sound and resonance, it does everything you can imagine, right? Creates light, levitates, boils water, creates DNA. Sound heals and destroys pathogens, moves beyond the speed of light. And we have hypersound and laser and saser technology, not laser, sound lasers, saser. Um, sound makes things invisible, energizes the water we drink, so that the water actually heals us, and it also energizes the air that we breathe so that we can actually survive from the air that we breathe. Otherwise, we would not survive from the air that we breathe if it wasn't for sound. And very importantly, sound is the precursor to electromagnetism, not the other way around. Sound causes electromagnetism. This is a big one for us to come to terms with. Ancient civilizations understood all this and they used sound and frequency as a source of energy in every possible way. They used sound and frequency to control humanity and it seems that they were focusing for some reason on our pineal gland. They had to destroy our pineal gland and the more you study this, the more you realize why that was critical because it seems that our pineal gland was that third eye that uh, so many of us are, are aware of or we keep calling it our third eye that connected us to everything in creation and allowed us to pick up the frequencies and the invisible, untouchable, unfathomable stuff through the third eye and actually be able to communicate telepathically with everything and everyone, interact not only with other beings but with other with other entities and beings and animals and trees and rocks because of our third eye. That thing there is the magic part of our body and our anatomy that's been completely destroyed. And they really, they, it seems from all these images that they took a lot of time and effort to destroy our pineal gland. And they continue to do so today. One issue of prophylactic, three lipsticks, three pair of nylon stockings, 
shoot, a fella could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with all that stuff. Stay on the bomb run, Pace. I'm going down below and see what I can do. Roger. Target distance, three miles. Roger, three miles. Target in sight. Hey, what about Major Kong?
What the fuck's up, everybody? Welcome to the WTF Forum. Thought I'd give you kind of a different intro this week. Uh, hope you liked it. As usual, I'm Mike the Polymath, Easy Peasy Podcast, and I will send it over to my good friend, Stella Q. Hey, it's uh, another week gone. I can't believe it. Hello, everyone. It's always great to be with you guys. Um, been looking forward to today. Good to see you too, Bear. How are you going? Oh, I'm doing well. I've had a nice weekend. Thanks, Stella. Yeah, it's good to see you guys. <clears throat> um, we may I'm have looking more. Forward to where this goes, because yeah. that was an interesting intro, and I'm not sure if I saw the links between it, but that first one with the uh, frequencies was really, uh, really interesting so far. So I took notes. Guys, yes, definitely guys. a man after my own heart. I got I got a roller coaster ride in store. You know, Bear, you said you can't hang out all night, which I get. Uh, but we'll see how far we can get with you. Uh, I hate to say it, we got to build me as far as you can. That's yeah, the challenge. We, we got a we got a foundation. We got to <laughs> lay here because there's man. All I gotta say, all I gotta say is I got inspired this week by multiple things from multiple angles. That song. I like that song, okay? I found out about this guy, Harry Bacharach. He's from uh, Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio. He's a jazz musician, like a working musician. Plays at bars, piano clubs, you know. And he puts out occasionally a spicy track. And I liked this one, Free Dumb with a B fries right oh, i wonder if he's a relation to burt beckerick it's a joke oh. harry <laughs> harry back a rack oh okay gotcha get it i bet you he's got a hairy back he's he's got a hairy face so you know why why shouldn't i think he's got a hairy back yeah it's a play it's a play on burt back rack but yeah harry gotcha. Harry Bacharach. <laughs> it's a pun. It's a pun. I would have thought of, you know, you're a pretty punny gal, Stella. Yeah, yeah. I've been out in the sun. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> Give me a break. It's Monday morning. Any Good other excuse, excuse insert yeah. here. Um, but yeah, no, that song. I mean, I don't know how hard you were listening to the lyrics, but loose change rattles in my pocket. Try to feed a family. They'll build a rocket. I'm like, ooh talking i'm pretty sure he's talking about gaza funny thing is this song is seven years old it's fairly generic though isn't it fairly generic but i don't know not a lot of families build rockets and then he says right after that he goes um oh how's he start it's the one about oh poor folks who try to blow the whistle Never saw the cowboy riding on the missile. And as soon as I heard that line, I go, he's talking about Dr. Strangelove. Are either you familiar with Dr. Strangelove? Or how I, how I stopped worrying and learned to love the bomb. That's the full title of the movie. I'm pretty sure I've seen it, but a long mm. time ago, I am familiar with the uh, the premise. 
the general mm-hmm. premise of the movie. Yeah, pretty much the same from my end. So this is another Stanley Kubrick. You know, we talked about Eyes Wide Shut a couple weeks ago. And Kubrick is somebody to kind of look at with a microscope. You know, I had not watched Dr. Strange Love in a long time either, but I remembered that image of the of the cowboy riding the nuke and hooping and hollering, you know, yee all the way to his own demise. You know, it's a very dark comedy, and I actually got introduced to it when I was probably 12 years old, but I kind of got it even then. You know, I had this friend who was really ironic and uh, smart, and he, and he, he showed, showed, ooh, ooh, we got, we got, hey, hey, Rob, Rob, yeah, I'm echoing. I'm echoing. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Check, check. Okay, okay. Nope, nope. <laughs> Something's, Something's looping looping there. there. Yeah, I'm hearing, I'm hearing that, that loop, that loop as, well. as well. Glad, glad, glad it's, glad not, it's not me. We're going to mute you, Rob. Check, check. Okay, Rob's muted. Figure that out, Rob. Um, <laughs> shoot. Anyways, uh, we were, Rob, we were talking about Dr. Strangelove. I would bet you anything Rob's a fan. You think we're good here, Rob? Rob? No, no. That's, that's bizarre. bizarre. So I can hear myself, but I can't hear you, Rob. This is fucked. <laughs> well, he was, well, he was muted, muted then. I'm hearing the echo. It's going to come out and come back in yep, again. Yep, yep. Ah, nice if, it would be nice if we could do that in life, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> could go out, reset, come back. <laughs> well, you know, and again, I'm just, I'm painting a wide brush here because it seems like there were all these intersections for me where I was like, I was like, um, this song, this movie, and these, these certain topics I want to explore. And there's no sense in me trying to point out how they all connect yet. It's going to take a, a good chunk of time. But uh, you said you took some notes, maybe? Any thoughts you want to share before we uh, jump into the first clip? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, just like the whole, the cross being the source of energy, I don't think that's anything I ever heard of before. And that part was very interesting. Um, sound equals a precursor um to electromagnetism it's like the the source of it and i think like so he said specifically the source of energy like the the cross represents the source of energy and we think of god as source right so um there's that that was very interesting and um you know somebody pointed out also the fact that it that it points to the pineal gland and the chakras mm. is very interesting too. Somebody pointed out, uh, I don't know what I was listening to, but the fact that X.com formerly known as Twitter, their symbol is across within a circle. Question is, is that like the mark of the beast or is that 
you know, something holy. I don't know, you know, but. It's also, if you look at it, it's a small section of what could be construed as part Freemasonry with mm-hmm. the, you know, the little set square and compass, like a section of that. It's just been pointed out. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> right. Slash pyramid and yeah. all seeing eye. And then, yeah, there's the, you, once you turn it into a diagonal, then you get those things. Hmm. Eh? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking I'll jump right into a clip. If, if there's no like pressing thoughts, I want to continue to paint this picture. Um, and hopefully Rob gets his, uh, his issue figured out. But anyways, um, Stella, I appreciate the comment. I'm going to turn my volume down a hair. So anyways, I'll jump into this one and uh, here we go. This is about a town not too far away from me. Okay. Today we are in historic New Harmony, Indiana, which was home to not one, but two communal societies here on the banks of the Wabash River in Southern Indiana. Let's go check it out. Today, I will be interviewing Mike Linderman, Western Regional Director of Indiana State Museum and Historic Sites. Hi, Mike. How are you today? I'm good, Anne. Can you tell us a little bit about the founding of New Harmony? Yeah, New Harmony was founded in 1814 by a group of people we refer to as the Harmonists. They came from Pennsylvania here to Indiana to have a new start, and they lived here for about 10 years, sold the whole town to a Scottish industrialist named Robert Owen. We then brought in what we call the boatload of knowledge. And these were people, high thinking individuals, scientists and whatnot. And then two years later, that whole idea collapsed here and it became basically what we have today. So this was known as a utopian society. Correct. Um, so they had all kinds of artists and scientists, um, people with lots of knowledge here, kind exactly. of concentrated in an outpost really on the frontier. Exactly, with the second group that was the, the case. Uh, the one problem was, though, they were not real hands-on as far as taking care of the property. And uh, that's pretty much why the community failed. So there was some discord between people in the community? That, and you know, there was a whole lot of people who had high-thinking ideas, but they didn't know how to manually take care of a place like this. Okay. Some places just make you feel a certain way. Like how a waterfall makes you feel at peace. Some places evoke many different emotions, such as dread, 
fear, sadness, or even contentment. Many people claim that the town of New Harmony has a certain kind of energy, one you can feel while you're there. This is a town with a very unusual history. For many reasons, it's one of the most mysterious places that you'll find in Indiana. It was once settled by an ancient people that built tombs along the Wabash River. In the early 1800s came an esoteric religious group, one that was waiting for the end of the world. And thereafter, a wealthy industrialist, a student of the occult, bought the entire town. He had a vision of a utopian city influenced by his occult teachings. While all these groups are now gone, they left behind many artifacts, unusual structures, religious symbols, perhaps even the supernatural footprints of an angel. But without a doubt, they left behind a strange and peculiar legacy. This is the mysterious town of New Harmony, Indiana. In ancient times, the Wabash River was a major waterway for an unknown people. And along its banks, they practiced a culture and mysterious religion. Some say they left behind a certain energy, one you can feel even today. Not just along the riverbank, but the entire town. Through the years, I've been here many times and in many seasons. I've always felt the peace of a small town. It feels tranquil and safe. But it also has something else. The town has a surreal quality, like a portal to another time. Strangely, all sound seems to be dampened and muffled, almost like a huge invisible dome has been placed over the city. Maybe it's because the buildings and shrubbery are so close together, absorbing sound. That would be a logical explanation. But many people have told me that they agree. Sound is absorbed here. Something special is going on, invisible to the naked eye. In 1814, a large group of religious people, called the Harmonists, sold their worldly possessions, left Pennsylvania, and settled here. With money pooled together, they bought over 20,000 acres and built 180 homes. In their minds, this would be the last place they ever lived until the end of the world, which they thought was imminent. Their leader was George Rapp, born in Germany in 1757. He called himself a prophet and strayed greatly from his Lutheran beginnings, adopting mystic beliefs and veneration of a goddess named Sophia. While the harmonists started with log cabins, they progressed into more civilized frame homes and brick structures. All of them looked very similar. They would get up very early, conduct a variety of trades, and in the evening, meet together at places like this one. A meeting house. Everyone was expected to be celibate as they waited for the end of the world. At the center of town, they built two churches. The last one was very large and made of brick. But today, only the portal of that church remains, 
The area where they worshipped is now a garden with a fountain. This was the epicenter of their faith and rituals, and there's a sense of that spirit today. Like a well that runs deep, it's difficult to know the source. But the clues are everywhere. Just outside town, they built a labyrinth. Unlike a maze, where you can get lost, a labyrinth will take you to the center if you just keep walking. The labyrinth pattern is of ancient origin and seen many places across the world. For the harmonist, it was a spiritual exercise, a place of meditation and connection to God. Back in town, the harmonist built a large granary to store and process their grains. The town was, by all appearances, successful, but some of the faithful started to wonder, was God coming back soon, like their prophet had promised? Frederick Rapp, George Rapp's adopted son and second-in-command of the harmonist, went to St. Louis, Missouri. Some might call it a religious pilgrimage. He brought back to New Harmony a large, curious piece of limestone that immediately caused a sensation. On the limestone slab were footprints, ones that had been there for ages, perhaps even centuries. Some say that Frederick Rapp himself claimed they were footprints of Gabriel, the archangel mentioned in the Bible. While others say that was just a rumor to make the harmonists look like crazy religious people. Controversial even in its time, the fossilized rock is considered millions of years old. By geological timelines, the footprints could not exist. Theories range from outright hoax, carved by ancient people, to being a genuine paranormal artifact. It is truly an item of curiosity. Within these brick walls, there are Native American mounds. The Harmonist, recognizing this as a prehistoric cemetery, buried their people here as well. When their former church was demolished, the bricks were utilized in making the wall, enclosing a resting place for both the ancient people and Harmonist. But much stranger things were yet to come. In 1825, after only 11 years, the Harmonist sold 20,000 acres to Robert Owen, a rich industrialist. They boarded a steamboat on the Wabash and left Harmony forever. This began a new era of mystery as Robert Owen brought many strange beliefs. He was an early advocate of socialism, new age ideas, was an opponent of religion, and later joined the spiritualist movement that communicated with the dead. All right, I'm going to pause it there. Are we intrigued? The the small town mm. of New New Harmony, Indiana is um you know, it's something I've heard people kind of mention, but I never looked into. And this guy, this guy Robert Owen, who was just introduced, we're going to we're going to switch to a different clip, but you know, I'll open it up before I do. Um but this guy is really interesting. So if I can sort of briefly summarize, we had this cult 
that settled the town of New Harmony, the Harmonists. They were essentially like hardcore puritanical Christians who thought that Jesus was coming back and they supposedly practiced abstinence like all together, <laughs> which is not a good protocol. If you want to have a sustainable society, I'll just say that much. Um, but yeah, this yeah. guy, this guy, Robert Owen, we're going to get into him, but what do you think at this point? Oh, I was just going to say, I can see why monks just go and sit in caves. <laughs> they don't all hang together if they want to be celibate. Oh, it sounds amazing. Yeah. I'm, I'm just very interested. I'm, I'm intrigued to see where this is going. So, yep. Sounds about, yeah. and, and I'm also just quickly having a real quick look at Indiana as I'm listening as well, and it's quite an intriguing place actually. So that'd be a very interesting place to uh, sniff you out know, a little bit more. Stella, um, I I've always, I mean, I'm partial, right? I I grew up here, but as I've explored, like I grew up in the suburbs, in the flat country, in the cornfields turned suburbs. Mm-hmm. Actually, the town I grew up in was kind of world famous for breeding some of the best racing horses. Right. And we had a bunch of that was the culture of my I had good history. Right. So my my little town was famous for, like I said, breeding these racing horses. And it was famous for being a Quaker town that was a major stop on the Underground Railroad shuttling freed slaves from Kentucky, Tennessee, you know, the Southern States through Indiana, through Michigan and up to Canada. Wow. And, um, so we had this like rich history, you know, and in, in a way my town was established by like religious fundamentalists, except Quakers are based. Okay. Quakers are hardcore, like pacifists. But they, uh, the way they practice church is very unique. Like they have Quaker meetings. I've I've been in a Quaker service only have you? like a home service, but yeah. Okay. Um, Tell us like what it... sitting around waiting for the Spirit to move you to speak, kind of thing. It's very just like meditative. Yes. And and dare I say anarchistic. Yeah. Okay. I think I think Quakers are some of the more anarchistic uh, Christians by nature. Yeah. Yeah. They sort of reminded me of the um, Amish and boy, they build beautiful, beautiful buildings, don't they? <laughs> yeah. They're, they're not really all that comparable. Um, I mean, they come with from the like, Amish. Yeah, yeah. Like they sort of originated around the same kind of time, I think, but like they, they don't shun technology. Um, okay. Right. So they're, they're just, yeah, yeah, more relaxed. Yeah. Um, so anywho, I mean, that's just to say that like hearing about this, this town in Southern Indiana that was established by what was a cult, you know, it's a fine line between a cult and a church. Quakers have never, as far as I know, been accused of being a cult, you know, but like certain other sects of Christianity have. I would say these harmonists were certainly a cult, um, but then they get taken over or rather I shouldn't say taken over. They sell the land and they kind of just disappear as far as I can tell. It's 
kind of a weird thing. They just like give up on new harmony. And I haven't really found a good explanation for that. I'd be curious to know more, but this guy, Robert Owen comes in and he is a character. Supposedly this is the guy who came up with the, the concept of the eight hour work day and the 40 hour work week. Okay. So he had, he had something of an impact. Hmm. Here we go. Ever wondered where the eight hour workday came from? One man was instrumental in creating this, trying to make life better for those in society forced to work long hours in terrible conditions. This video looks at the life and accomplishments of Robert Owen, a Welsh philanthropist who changed the working day, tried to improve the lives of his workers and all those in poverty, established the cooperative movement in Britain, and even tried to start his own utopian city in the heart of America. Robert Owen was born in Newtown, a small town in Montgomeryshire, Wales, on May the 14th, 1771. He wasn't born into wealth. His father, Robert Owen Sr., worked three jobs as a saddler, ironmonger, and the local postman. His mother, Anne Williams, was the daughter of a farmer. Robert was one of seven siblings, but two of them had died while only young. This wasn't unusual for the 18th century, in which a high proportion of children died before they were five. When he was old enough, he attended the local school, but at that time, focus was more on a moral education. This meant that although children had a grounding in Bible stories and perhaps some practical skills, they received little in the way of reading, writing, or mathematics. Despite this, Robert found he had an affinity for books, and he became an avid reader. At the age of 10, his school time was at an end, and he was apprenticed to a draper in Lincolnshire for four years. A draper was a wholesaler of cloth that was mostly destined for the clothing trade. Alongside learning his trade, his employer had a good library, which he allowed the young Robert to continue to learn from. At 14 years old, Robert went out into the world to earn his way, continuing to work in drapery shops until the age of 18, when he decided to move to Manchester. In 1787, Manchester was in the perfect location to expand with the rapidly growing cloth industry that was powered by the spinning jenny, the beginning of the industrial revolution for cloth. It wasn't long before Robert showed his skills at business and was first employed at Satterfield's Drapery in St Anne's Square. It was here that he would get his first taste of entrepreneurial spirit. Here Robert met Ernest Jones, a young engineer, and the two planned to go into business together, making spinning mules. They were a new invention for spinning cotton, and Robert borrowed a hundred pounds from his brother for his share, about 5,800 British pounds in today's money. A huge amount to borrow, and the partnership dissolved after just a few months. He sold his share of the business to set out on his own. With just three workers, Robert set up a new company with the same spinning mules in a rented factory space. He also took on a job as a manager at Piccadilly Mill, the first mill in Manchester to be powered by a steam engine. 
and later turned down a partnership here to go into business with two other people. They opened and ran the Cholton Twist Mills in Cholton on Medlock, an inner suburb of Manchester. No doubt this would shape his understanding of the problems within mills and the way people employed in them had to work and live. Robert was just 23 years old at this point, from a humble background, but already he was running several of his own businesses, making vast amounts of money and had become a learned and well-read student of many subjects. This was recognised when he was invited to join the Manchester Literary and Philosophical Society. This was a place for like-minded men to meet and discuss matters of philosophy or learning and present papers to one another. However, this was no doubt where Robert started to pick up more on socialism and matters of social reform, which would shape the way he lived his life going forward. And when the Manchester Board of Health was set up in 1796, Robert Owen was invited to represent the cotton industry, looking into the health and well-being of workers in the mills. Just a few years later, in 1799, Robert travelled to Scotland and met Anne Caroline Dale, daughter of the prominent Glasgow philanthropist and mill owner David Dale. Not much is known about Anne's life before this point, but they fell in love and married on the 30th of September. It wasn't very long before they started a family, and they would go on to have eight children, the first who died as a baby. Their surviving children were four sons and three daughters, and many of them would follow in their father's footsteps for many of his plans and schemes throughout his lifetime. Marrying Anne Caroline also meant that Robert was now in with his father-in-law and his mills at New Lanark. New Lanark was already seen as a model cotton mill, mostly due to David Dale's efforts. As was normal for the time, around 500 of the 2,000 employees at the mill were children, and 300 of these were apprenticed orphans from the local workhouses of Glasgow and Edinburgh. The parish would have sent them out to local businesses in order to reduce costs, as their room and board was supposed to be covered by their new employers while they learned new skills. In reality, these children were often made to work long hours for dangerous, exhausting work and got very little in the way of food or clothing in return. David Dale, however, treated his apprentice children very differently. They were well fed and had proper places to sleep, were given two sets of clothing which was laundered regularly, and most importantly, they were given an education alongside learning practical skills at work. While to modernise this is still fairly horrific, as the children had to work from 6am until 7pm, with only breaks for breakfast and dinner, this was still an improvement over most conditions for poor children, whether orphans or not. When Robert Owen came on the scene, he picked up where his father-in-law had left off. In July, just a few months after his marriage, he bought the new Lanark Mill from David and became its sole owner and manager. While conditions had been better for the orphan children there than most, they, and the other poorer employees of the mill, were still victim to the worst parts of society at that time. Poverty created an environment in which theft and drunkenness were rife, and education was practically non-existent. 
those who lived at the bottom rung of society had little choice but to work in the factories and mills. And even though New Lanark was better than most, the employees still had to go back to their homes and lives that took what little they had. Robert set about establishing his own improvements for his workers, starting with his mill's truck system. A truck system was in place at many mills and consisted of workers being paid with a currency that could only be spent in the mill's shop, usually at ridiculously inflated prices. It remained this way until the Truck Acts from 1831 to 1887 enforced employees being paid with common currency. However, New Lanark was different. Although currency could only be spent in the mill's local shop in the village, the prices were only a little above cost, making it far cheaper than anywhere else the employees could have gone. Alcohol sales were strictly supervised in order to try and reduce drunkenness. The profits from the shop even went towards a free school in the village set up for the children who worked in the mill. These ideas led to Robert being known as the founding father of the British cooperative movement. The village's free school was the first infant school in Britain. Robert didn't believe in using corporal punishment and instead used encouragement for the young children. Sounds like a pretty good guy, doesn't it? What do you think? They generally do at the beginning <laughs> to insert themselves into the right places in the minds of the people mm -hmm. and their trust. Is that where it's heading? Or uh... Well, you could say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Robert Owen. This is a name that none of us have ever heard of or discussed, but he had an influence. Would it shock you? If I maybe I'll just tease you with this little factoid. He was one of the founding fathers, I guess you could say, of the Smithsonian Institute. Uh huh. Mm. Could you please could yeah. you please remind me of the time or the year ish around now? I sort of missed that. Uh I think that we're talking I think we're talking like eighteen. 20s, 1830s, okay, uh, kind of around there. Definitely post-industrialization, or I guess you could say during industrialization, post mm -hmm. the invention of the steam engine, which was a major fucking leap that people yeah. don't really recognize much. But um, yeah. That was basically the foundation of the Industrial Revolution. That's it? why all that shit about the cotton mule, right? The spinning yep. machine why that's critical. I mean, this was at the dawn of a new age of, of machine, you know, efficient automation, automation, but you still required a lot of physical human labor mm, and maintenance. And so this guy, he's what you might call one of the early, like billionaire philanthropists, even though he probably never had a billion dollars in today's money. He probably did eventually we're not quite there in his story yet, but he's an interesting cat. He's like maybe the Elon Musk of his day. Yeah. Yep. You know, something. So one of my A revolutionary, one of my favorite little quotes or sayings is the best slave is the one who believes he is free. Mm -hmm. 
And it seems like he was figuring that out. He created the four hour or 40 hour work week and um, he treated his slaves better and paid them. And therefore they believed they were free kind of thing. And really, mm-hmm. you know, um, I've been thinking about this. This is interesting that you kind of bring this subject, Mike, because I've been thinking about this recently, how slavery was never abolished. That's a myth. That's a myth we were told in school. Freedom's a myth. I mean, it kind of is, yeah. Like, we're all slaves to some degree. It's just, what is that degree? What's your tolerance for (laughs) that? And So long as there's a passport to be able to travel around or papers, then there's no freedom. If I may quote the the song that I started the show with, free, dumb, free, dumb fries. Politicians talking and you know their lies. I mean, yeah, yeah, just saying. But yeah, I mean, this this, this sort of yeah. has shades. It's reminding me of the uh, the Jones Plantation, which um, yes, okay, I confess I haven't seen it yet, but funnily enough, I paid to see it this morning, so it's on the agenda for this afternoon, actually, with Mum. But um, yeah, it's just reminding me of that kind of flavor, which is that was written by Larkin Rose, and it was because I was watching a Larkin Rose catch up this morning that I then went on to. I've got to pay for this damn movie and support them and watch it. So yeah, anyway, back to the the plantation thing. It's got shades of that. Have you got you guys? You've seen it, Bear? Have you? I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. It's really okay. good. I cool. I enjoyed it a lot. I watched it with my wife, and she liked it too, which is saying something. So yeah, it was good. All right. That's um, a good review a, then. <laughs> it's a fun movie. It's uh, it's both fun and it delivers a a brutal and uh powerful message. You know. Mm. Would um, you say there's parallels there then? It's, it's about the company store, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, sold my, they, sold my soul to the company store. Yeah. 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 Mm. Um, and just, I mean, there's there's more to it than that, but I, I don't want to give the whole movie away either. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you're about to watch it. Or, or derail Mike. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, right, all, yeah. that's, all, that's all really good shit. Um, re- remind me, because I heard it, but it went in one ear out the other. Uh, what's the movie called again? The Jones, the Jones Plantation. And this was like, it was a low budget kind of independent. Um, yeah. So it was written yeah. by Larkin Rose, who mm. also did uh, Candles in, no, not Candles in the Wind. Oh, damn, what's it called? Candles he's in the done, Dark. Um, Candles the... in the Dark, I think it's called. So he's very much of like a freedom movement anarchist. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, he the update that he was doing that I was watching this morning was his review on Anarchapolco because he was there. Yeah, he's um, one of the big anarcho-political yeah. guys, and he cool, was in the Monopoly cool. and violence and stuff. Mm. And um, so the movie that he just made was also with Legal Man, or Lee Goldman yeah. is the name he's going by, which I still don't reckon is his real name, but anyway, <laughs> that's it. Hooray <laughs> for another day. Um, so, yeah, he'd never acted before, as far as I know, in his life, and um, the previews and the bits that are the trailers that I've seen, it looks like he's uh, been a bit of a natural. So, yeah, um Encourage people it, to go and support it. They filmed it during COVID times, which actually, in mm. a way, worked to their benefit because being like non-union and everything, um, some of the normal actors were able to work for them because they weren't working. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I'm I'm pretty sure this Robert Owen cat might have had something to do with um, the first unions. Isn't that funny? <laughs> so, oh, man, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if there's nothing pressing, I'll, I'll carry on. I'm eager to see how the cymatics and all that works into this. You know, it it's 
it's hard to describe, but trust me, we're going to get there. Okay? All right. I trust you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Whoops. The curriculum also included arithmetic, reading and writing. But rather than the religious education that he had been taught with his limited education, dancing and music was taught instead. The emphasis was on the development and happiness of the young students, something that rings true in modern education. One of the weavers in the mill, James Buchanan, had worked at the school and was later put in charge of the first infant school in England, in Westminster, in 1818, as New Lanark was so successful. Education was even put in place for teenagers and adults, with the Institute of Formation of Character, which not only taught those who were too old for the infant school, but also held concerts and speeches. The other important development for the mill was in how the workers were encouraged in their work. Most mills were heavy-handed, punishing employees for the slightest infraction with the severest of punishments. But Robert developed a system known as the silent monitor. This was a cube held near each employee's workstation and was painted with a different color on four of its faces. Excellent work was the white side, good work was yellow, adequate was blue, and black based on the Scottish term black-affronted, which meant embarrassed, was for poor work. There were also fines for drunkenness, and between these two reforms, the workers were encouraged to be on their best behaviour, purely on their own merit. While it doesn't seem as though this would be much of an incentive, it was actually highly effective, as Robert's employees wanted to leave a good impression, as he treated them far better than other employers might have. All of these changes stemmed from Robert Owen's core beliefs, that people were shaped by their environment, for better or worse. He believed that many of the problems in poverty-ridden neighborhoods could be blamed on the conditions people were forced to live in, and if these were improved, it would make the lives of these people happier and healthier. In 1810, he raised the issue with Parliament of an eight-hour day and set about putting this into practice at New Lanark. Owen would later encapsulate this in a phrase, eight hours labor, eight hours recreation, eight hours rest. Essentially, the typical modern working day. Most people in the early 19th century, including children, worked anywhere between 10 and 16 hours of back-breaking work. However, as much as his groundbreaking ideas were a success, and the mill continued to be commercially successful, Robert's schemes cost more money than his investors were prepared to shell out for. In 1813, he sold his share in the business, leaving him free to pursue other philanthropic pathways. But something to be remembered was not everything was so humane and cheerful about the new Lanark mill. While the workers at the mill certainly had improved lives and education, not the same could be said for every part of the production line. The American Sea Island cotton used at New Lanark came from Barbados, then part of the British Empire. Slavery had not yet been abolished, and the cotton used here almost certainly came from slave plantations. Over the course of the 19th century, cotton would grow to become the fabric of choice for British and European clothing, overwhelmingly relying on slave-grown cotton from the USA's southern states by mid-century. While Robert Owen was undoubtedly a reformer in one aspect, his chosen business would increase misery for thousands more. Robert began to tour Britain, giving lectures and talks on how to reform working places such as factories and mills. Unfortunately, while some small changes were made, 
the government of the time was not interested in implementing most of his ideas. He instead took to publishing his ideas, setting them out as essays, pamphlets and books. He rejected organized religion, instead choosing to become a deist, arguing that a divine being could only be realized through logical reasoning and observation of the natural world. This tied in with his belief that people could only improve their lives through cooperative working together. Later in the 1830s, he would give an address in which he told the working class people listening that they were deliberately being kept in poverty by not being given an adequate education. It wasn't long before Robert Owen became disillusioned by his lack of progress, and in 1825 he moved to America with the intention of starting a new self-sufficient community. Back in Britain, he had outlined his idea for a communal society of 500 to 1,200 people living in one large building with separate apartments but communal kitchens and eating areas. Children would be looked after completely by their family until they were three. Then, they would be raised by the entire community, with parents seeing them at mealtimes and in the evenings. What, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Do you see where I'm getting with all this? I mean, come on, this guy basically invented public schools. What a guy. What a guy. Uh, yeah, improved education is definitely uh, a trigger for me because I think <laughs> of education as... Um, who was it um, who was in charge of uh, communist Cuba who educated his people just enough to read the propaganda? <laughs> Did his last name start with a C and end with an Astro? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Fidel Castro. That might have been it. That, was that <laughs> it? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because if he only wants the children to be slavery. So when I guess when they grow up, it's they're going to be a little bit redundant in one sense. So why not then, you know, make the most of them and indoctrinate yeah. them to go out into the world to, you know, increase your empire? Hey, well, at least sense. at least he cut religion out of the schools and taught them to sing and dance instead. You know, because because his his priority was their happiness, much like today's schools. Like, that was the line that I was like, are you shitting me, bro? Like, okay. <laughs> That's, um, so it's Prussian schooling, mm -hmm. teaching the kids to uh, respond to the alarm bells at a certain time and follow the program kind of thing. Like, that whole mm. thing is geared toward factory work. Programming, yeah. So the beginning of programming, I suppose, in a very structured sense. Oh, it's hardly the beginning, but... Well, not uh, beginning, but... Ref refining. Refining. Yeah. Yes, yes. Let me, uh, let me show you some more here. I've got it sped up, so hopefully we can get through this pretty quick. Um, yeah. But there's... Man, I mean, I'm just saying, this, this is a guy that we should be talking about, you know? While many liked his ideas about compassion and kindness doing more to reinforce good habits in society than brute force many also didn't like his opposition to religion. If he had simply chosen to accept the beliefs of others, it might have worked. But Robert Owen publicly declared that believing in any religion was a block to progressing as a society, earning him plenty of opponents. Other critics included Marx and Engels, who believed that society would only improve if the working classes rose up and overthrew the capitalists. Whereas Owen wanted capitalists and those lower down the chain to work together. This included being opposed to expanding voting rights. Along with his son, William, 
Robert bought a parcel of land in Indiana in January 1825, along the Wabash River. Within this site was a village named Harmony, which had been set up by a religious group that relocated to Pennsylvania. Owen renamed it New Harmony, and set about remodeling the village into his model for a utopian socialist society. But he needed capital to keep his dream going, and he sought out investors and partners, even giving addresses in Congress to entice people to join him. He finally managed to convince William McClure, a Scottish-born scientist and philanthropist living in Philadelphia, to move to New Harmony and become his financial partner. McClure wanted to use New Harmony to experiment with his model of an agricultural-based communal community. His involvement attracted yet more scientists, artists, and socialists to move to Indiana and settle in New Harmony. Residents did make several firsts for the town, establishing the first public library, a civic drama club, and a public school system open to both men and women. However, the town was not the success Robert had hoped for. Oh, no. How come? <laughs> so, again, I mean, again, this guy, I, I actually think it might have been the first public library in the entire state of Indiana. I'm not sure about that, but like this guy, you know, credit they, where credit's due. He was he was new breaking Harmony new PA. ground. Say again. They keep saying New Harmony, PA. Yeah, well, that's where the harmonists came from. Oh, they came... and then they went further to Indiana. After... So actually, I believe that this narrator got it mixed up. But yeah, they came from Pennsylvania to Indiana and then supposedly, uh, <laughs> you know, floated down the Mississippi River to St. Louis. Well, and I kind of want to check out yeah. New Harmony. It's uh sounds good. Yeah. Which I, I a actually, great place to go. Since since I've gotten into this, I'm going there. I'm gonna make a trip of it. It's only like two and a half hours. Uh do it live. Me. Do it yes. live from there. <laughs> well, maybe not live. I think what I'd do is walk around with a with a recorder and yeah. uh, interview some folks and you know piece it together. Yeah. But um no, this place is very, very interesting. And I guess again, I'll kind of tease out where I'm going. I think that there's mega significance to this piece of ground you know Ray i think lines? there's i think there's something uh, going on yeah, yeah. i was and, actually looking at some ley line maps as well um mm -hmm. again as i've said before it's very hard to find Good. something you can sort of trust because there's right. so many variations between the maps which mm -hmm. i think possibly has been muddied for a reason <laughs> you think mm -hmm. um so hard to know which one to look at but um mm -hmm. i don't want to sort of do a spoiler or anything on any of your plans here, Mike, but I was just looking at I, the, uh, that's the kind of information I have not dug up yet for myself. All I have okay. are these kind of <laughs> videos and, um, there's, there's some archeological stuff that we're going to get to here shortly. But like, if there's anything corroborating that these ley lines might in fact, uh, fall on new harmony, I, mm. you know, that's not anything I looked into. So I'd be yeah, curious. It's a, it, it's a shame Jin's not here because he knows quite a bit about. You've heard about the mounds. I really don't know very much yeah. about. Them. So there, there are mounds, and mm. they they talked about it briefly. Um, but within like they they actually buried their own at the same place, like on the mounds, and part of like the new harmonists thing was they didn't have any headstones. Like there was no individual recognition once they died. Mm. They were just buried and no no like markings because that would be like you know not 
communal. That's yep. that's the weird thing is like the harmonists. The harmonists themselves were basically communists of a, of a variety, and then this like new like modern type of communist shows up and buys the land from them. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Like we're only getting a snippet at this story. There's a whole lot more, you know. Just yeah, scratching just... the surface. Yeah. Uh, I was just looking at a sun sun temple, um, summer and winter solstice, some temples here in Indiana's sun temple ley line. So hmm. it's, uh, I don't know whether that's going to come up a little bit later. Don't know much about it. Just looking at it. Is that the same Sorry, mounds me. as the snake mounds? Um, there's snake mounds no. in Ohio. Serpent. Yeah. Serpent mound. Serpent mounds. Yeah. yeah. I was there as a kid. But they're Still, all that was Indians, though, or American Indians. That's what they claim. That's yeah. what they claim. You know, right. uh, I'm not so convinced. And all of these mound sites actually seem to be kind of uh, coordinated with each other, right? I mean, many of them uh, are sort of referencing the the solstices and the equinoxes and whatnot. But there also seems to be like some celestial significance of like the layout of mound sites in relation to each other right sort of like how uh stonehenge you know there's like the greater stonehenge complex well beyond like just that ring of rocks like there's there's geo works you know earthworks miles and miles away that are perfectly in line with stonehenge and you know same things here on on the north american well, continent i've, I've yeah. also heard that stonehenge is bullshit and maybe it's to distract mm. from those other really ones. maybe those other yeah. ones are the real ones and stonehenge is bullshit interesting <laughs> stella uh yeah i've i have also heard a theory that stonehenge is not as it was like it, that it's actually been moved and sort of reconstructed as well um mike is there any way you can oh there's rob do you want to bring him in i'll let you bring him in what's up yeah. rob can you hear us? Yo. Check, check. He yep. says, give just, him a sec. Just give him a minute. Hey, look who else is here. Oh, Fido. Hey. She might need a second to get Hey, away. I just dropped in. <laughs> hey, what's happening? Hello. Yeah, just I misplaced my headphones, so I'm having to do it without headphones, which is mm -hmm. a little annoying to me, but that's okay. We'll make it through. <laughs> all good. All good. Um, Mike, is, is some way you could bring up that uh, link that I just dropped into the private chat just so sure, we can have sure. a really quick look at that? I think it's sort of relevant, probably worth having a look at. Again, I've only just sort of stumbled across it. I'm trying Let's to read it while I'm listening. see here. You talking the Nephilim link? Yeah, yeah. Nephilimgiants.net. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is what I was talking about. The summer solstice and winter solstice sunrise seem to link up with some temple there. Hmm. And something to do with the mounds. Yep. It might make so, more sense to you. <laughs> being in well, it does. It does because I know these counties. So this is not exactly the area that we're talking, but there's a whole lot of uh, old sites in Indiana. Yep. You know, people people yep. don't think about Indiana as far as like archaeological significance, but come on. I mean, there's some weird shit going on here. So this is actually, um, so right here is Marion County. Can you see my cursor? Yes. So I'm basically right here on the White River. I'm like quarter mile oh, okay. from the river. Um, but where we're talking is way down here off the map, like to the southwest. Okay. But um, yeah, 
yeah. So I grew up, uh, I grew up right here. I live right here, <laughs> but I know all of this stuff, you know, I've been, I've been around. So, mm-hmm. uh, what are we, did you read through much of this? I mean, is this just, uh, there's not much there to read really. It's just yeah, what's written yeah. on the thing, but it's yeah. just, it was just an interesting point of a historic well, value of India. And as usual, know. Stella Q, we are, we are all right in line. We're going to get to some Nephilim giants type of shit here. Mm. Uh, but in the meantime, do we have Rob? Are you coming in? I think so. Hey, there you are. Can you hear me? Yep. There you go. We can. Does he look delayed? A little bit of a delay. Delay. Yeah. That's better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is because I went ahead and I made the mistake of, well, I was forced to update windows or I couldn't go (laughs) see Taylor Swift apparently. (laughs) So you know hey priorities it up everything it, yeah it blows all my studio setups all my settings everything it just tears them apart <laughs> and then it takes weeks or months to put it back together Jeez. uh you talk to windows tech support they can't figure out what's going on it, you know oh and you know what their other um back out is they say oh well we don't well we don't support um you know uh video studio setups and I'm like, what, what does that have to do with it? How about your OS just work correctly? That would be fine, right? Well, you yeah. know, it, what, are you, what are you supposed to use them for? Like paperweights or what? <laughs> it almost, it almost Get your propaganda. Me, Get a vaccine. Me, That's it all makes you're supposed me want to go back. It makes me want to go back to a simpler time where a rich philanthropist could just buy 20,000 <laughs> acres in Southern Indiana and start his own commune, you know, when it was simpler. <laughs> so rob you remember the song by the dead milkman anybody remember the song about by the dead milkman just me on a hilltop with 15 girls and a nelson riley oily orgy that'll make your hair curl <laughs> you never heard that one no i i can't say i, I have that one probably would remember that oh yeah <laughs> but good you know he was basically making fun of all these cults that were hitting you know back in the mm. early to mid 80s you know so to catch you up rob and fido we're talking about a small town in Southern Indiana called New Harmony, where there was first a religious cult. Well, I shouldn't say first. First, there was a ancient settlement that we know very little about. And I haven't even you know talked about yet. It's barely come up in the videos, but we'll get there. Second, there was a religious cult of more or less like... um. Yeah, uh, you know, Christian like fundamentalists who thought Jesus was coming back and that they shouldn't bone because if they did, they'd go to hell. So like they didn't have any kids, so they just kind of dissolved and went away and sold the land to this modern type of uh, communist, you know, from religious communists to, you know, atheistic type of communists. And uh, this guy, Robert Owen you know, he's the guy that is credited with coming up with the eight hour work day, the 40 hour work you know, work week. He was a big part of like, you know, workers rights, unions, like all this shit. And like, nobody knows who this guy is, but he tried to create utopia in Southern Indiana. So that's my, that's my bringing you up to speed there, guys. Newcomers. Okay. Yeah. Let me step into this fray. Yeah. This fits very 
Hey, this 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 tracks very closely with Jim Jones and his time at Butler University, and also Dr. Kellogg um, over in Battle Creek, Michigan. We also had almost the um, same ideals. We also had uh, the sex doctor at IU. What was his name? Uh, Kinsey. Kinsey. Yeah, Alfred yeah. Kinsey. You know, Indiana. We're the cross <laughs> crossroads of America, man. I'm saying I got it. I you know, there's there's a lot of convergence in central Indiana, or I guess Indiana yeah. generally. But yeah. And weren't they the last, wasn't that also the last state to get rid of child labor? So when we're not <laughs> screwing the kids, we've got them working in a mine. Yeah. You know? I don't know if that's true, but so, you might you might be right. I don't know. I think it is. Huh. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, that outrage, I think, is what drove the guy you're talking about to finally push for the eight-hour workday. It wasn't necessarily supposed to be for the adults. It was mm. supposed to be for the children, if I recall. Hmm. Um, Mike, is this? Uh, I'm I'm a little off with my dates of history. Is this is this tying in at all with the orphan trains? I mean, like all these children, these could slaved be. Could children. Be. Right. Yeah. Okay. There's no direct I correlation. Here. I I don't. That's something I don't know anything about. Um, okay. Was that in Europe or in America? Well, primarily Europe, but I oh was was it. I thought it was. Oh, yeah, they know. had it here too. They had the orphan funding. trains here, and that's how they filled the mining positions. They mm -hmm. didn't have enough adults to work in the mines, so uh, people like J.P. Morgan and Carnegie would basically buy kids, adopt them more or less, and they would work in the factories and it, also in the meatpacking plants and the uh, textile mills. So, yeah, and so, they were wondering where all the where all the parents of all these hundreds of thousands of children went and there was some correlation with some kind of genocide that happened. I don't know. I don't know enough about it. But Carnegie, yeah, I mean, there was just talk about a library prior right, in this, wasn't right. there? Carnegie yep. was, yeah, he was really the head of setting up all the libraries um, all around America. He mm -hmm. was sort of, That was, I suppose, I mean, uh, amongst many other things. But um, he was very much financier of, yeah, the um, the literature, which, of course, yeah. is a powerful thing. Control the control the knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, and you know this guy. Just again to catch you guys up that are that are coming in late. He ran textile mills in essence in Europe, in England, and uh, employed children. But don't worry, he was the good guy. He fed them good. He gave them two changes of clothes. He he gave them an education of sorts. And, uh, you know, they were all happy and didn't mind working from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m., you know, no problem because they, they they learned how to dance and sing and, uh, you know, do simple mathematics. But let me let me kind of catch you up here. We'll, we'll carry on um, again. This guy's name is Robert Owen, and I think he might be one of the most influential people that you've never, ever heard of. He invited any and all to join him and his son. And as a result, despite attracting many interested people, this also attracted people looking for an adventure or just out of curiosity who were unlikely to try and make the experiment a success. William Owen himself noted in his diary that people coming to the town who had been comfortable and content in their old lives were unlikely to find any instant happiness in New Harmony. 
Robert's grand plan for a large communal building was never realized either, although bricks were fired for its construction. After a few months of chaos, leadership was finally established through the formation of a committee. A system was also worked out where residents were responsible for their own household goods, but could work for or buy credit at the town's local store. During this time, Robert made his way briefly back to Scotland, selling his remaining mill interests and ensuring his wife and two of his daughters were financially secure in his absence. His four sons and his remaining daughter, Jane, all made their way out to the US with their father, settling in New Harmony. However, the experiment was to fail permanently as time went on. Although a worthy constitution had been laid out, basing each individual's tasks in the society on age, it failed to spell out anything about individual sovereignty or ownership of personal property. Residents began to have differences of opinion and tastes that went against the single vision of the town. It would seem Robert Owen's plan either left little room for the ideas of others, or maybe it left too much room. Other problems were Owen's resistance yet again to allowing different religions to exist within the town and his inability to convince the American aristocracy to finance his utopia. After two years, most of the residents had left in despair of ever having their viewpoints listened to or implemented and the social experiment of New Harmony was done. However, the town itself continued with some of his children staying on and remaining in the US. Robert Dale Owen, one of his sons, stayed on and later became a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, helping to establish the Smithsonian Institute. David Dale Owen, his third son, became a noted geologist, and his younger son, Richard Owen, became the first president of Purdue University. Robert Owen returned to Britain, his fortune depleted. He had sunk nearly £40,000 into his utopian vision, about 80% of his fortune. His sons in America swapped their shares in the new Lanark Mills for shares in New Harmony's lands, paying their father an annuity of $1,500 for the rest of his life to help. All right, pausing there. Uh, I find it very interesting that this family seemed to liquidate all their assets in order to buy more and more land in New Harmony. That's, that's what I'm reading through the lines of this, of this tale. You know, the, the, the social experiment, the utopia failed, and yet his family continued to buy up the property. Like maybe there was something, you know, valuable. Just saying. Yeah. Was it making the most out of something that failed or was it incredibly great foresight? Who yeah, knows? Did it fail? Yeah, did exactly. It fail? <laughs> did it fail? I mean, yeah. I was getting $1,500. What was it per something? For the rest of his life uh from those bits of land yeah well he you was know, i don't even think broke. i don't think that's even half of the no that's not even a factor i think the the archaeology of this place is what mm. matters mm -hmm. so i'll carry on unless there's anything else well oh. just on oh sorry there you go um the one thing that kind of struck me in that last segment was uh the the child workers that are being programmed they they're going to grow up and eventually kind of become their own person become self-aware and that could cause problems if you expect to keep them forever and if they didn't plan for that then that could mean maybe they pivoted into buying up land or whatever but it could certainly lead to failure as far as the uh, the current model goes well are they going to grow up to be employees of the smithsonian institute 
<laughs> Slash I mean, he's, <laughs> yeah, he's well, providing not, the yeah. education, etc. So it makes sense shifting them from one place into another to extend your empire. I hate, I hate to admit it, but for the time, this guy was, uh, was quite a polymath, if I may. Yep. Not a it's good, easy. not a, not a, not a, you know, I think he was a dark polymath, but still. Well, the slather was pretty open. It's easy to criticize in hindsight. And I'm, you know, just to play devil's advocate a little bit. Um, slather was fairly open as far as um, creative new ideas went. And, you know, the multifacetism was probably also the case back then. I mean, they were all pretty good business people. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to know. It's It was all a big experiment. I mean, a whole of America was a big experiment, so or little experiments within the big one. <laughs> you know. But the Smithsonian Institute, I mean, they've. I was only listening to something yesterday when they talked about, I mean, we all know this, but they talked about, again, how so many... Um, well, collectors, some collectors or estates or what have you, you know, hand over or even, you know, people who find things, hand things over to the Smithsonian Institute thinking they're doing, you know, the right thing. And this is going back a long time, not just now. Um, yeah, and thinking that they're going to be, you know, advanced people and history and, you know, education and what have you. And those artefacts are never seen again and you're, never heard of and never spoken of. You're getting just a hair ahead of me, though. Uh, you know? Sorry about that. Ah, no, it's a good, it's always a good thing when you do or when anyone does. Just a nose uh, hair. Just a hair. All right. Uh, anything else? All right. Let's go. Help him financially. But while he was no longer the wealthy philanthropist he had once been, he found his ideas had found stronger roots in his absence, and he was recast as a leader of working-class unionists. Robert continued to promote free education, better working conditions, and healthy and livable conditions in the new factory towns that had sprung up. He tried to form many new societies and organizations, such as the National Equitable Labor Exchange, which used a time-based currency that exchanged labor for goods, and the Association of All Classes of All Nations in 1835, which attempted to combine all unions into a single effective confederation. But despite his persistence, most of his efforts came to nothing. With one exception, the cooperative movement was starting, by 1846, to build on itself, and new cooperative societies were springing up in places like Rochdale. In 1854, at the age of 83, and in spite of having declared religion false, Robert became interested in spiritualism. He converted to it after sitting several times with Maria B. Hayden, an American spiritualist who is credited with influencing the development of it in England. He even publicly announced his newfound faith in the beyond in his own publication, The Rational Quarterly Review, stating that he had made contact with Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, amongst others, for the purpose of changing the present false, disunited and miserable state of human existence for a true united and happy state, to prepare the world for universal peace and to infuse into all the spirit of charity, forbearance and love. Unsurprisingly, as he aged and his views became more radical and extreme, they fell out of fashion. His influence vanished, and Robert Owen became an unknown figure. He moved back to the town of his birth towards the end of his life, going back to Newtown in Wales with his wife, penniless except for the pension his sons paid out to him. On the 17th of November, 1858, Robert Owen died at the age of 87.
There had been times Robert Owen had managed to rub people up the wrong way by refusing to acquiesce to tolerance of religion or by being unbending in his ideas when it involved other people. There was a controlling element to his personality and he wouldn't always take on board the opinions of others, even when it would help. But regardless of these flaws, Robert Owen did an enormous amount to improve the lives and condition of the working classes and truly tried to change society for the better with his utopian ideals. He was responsible for being the founder of the cooperative movement in Britain and for creating the first infant schools in Britain. Through his efforts in New Lanark and New Harmony, he established public libraries and schools, all for free, to allow everyone an education. His legacy even continued with the efforts of his children, who went on to press for reform and change as their father had. His reforms were ahead of his time, and his constant push for social change brought real reform for children and women and for the right. What a guy. What a guy. Look at him. Does does that not look like a good guy? <laughs> <laughs> He's got that eye thing going on. Yeah, he looks <laughs> he looks kind of fucked in the fucking head, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. You know. Only, a face that only a mother could love. Oh, but he but he did such a nice thing. I mean, he he helped yeah. America become more socialist. And this is I mean, it cracks me up. This is how they wrap this video up. And this must be like the British uh, fucking perspective here, because I mean, Jesus, I'll give you the Amer I'll give you the American perspective in a second. But oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I love the way he's setting everything up for free. Big fat air quotes. Free. Nothing's for free, baby. Free dumb. Free dumb. I don't know what you guys are talking about. It all sounds amazing. You're starting to see the connections, aren't you? Aren't you? Sounds really nice. <laughs> it does. Every white well, is a black. You know, it's just it, it cracks me up because that video. You know, I I I teased you with the uh, the good one, and then I went to the to the bullshit one. <laughs> <laughs> right. So now that we know who Robert Owen was, hypothetically in air quotes it's being presented as was yes um here let me show you his legacy for certain the town would never be the same his goal was to establish an exotic utopian society and rename the town new harmony he had very big plans as a socialist commune it would be a place for liberal studies and education as well as a center for the arts and sciences he was joined by William McClure, a man that retired at only 34 years old. William had made a fortune in the mercantile business and was interested in Robert's social experiments. He donated a large sum of money and became a co-founder of the new town. Just like Robert Owen, he had a strong bias against religion, saying that it was all a delusion and there was nothing beyond the grave. Much like today, Rich people were shaping the beliefs and guidelines of society. The town went from being based on God to being based on humanism. Some say that brought a divine curse on everyone involved. Robert Owen's utopia ended in only two years, dissolving by 1827. The experiment was an economic failure and the beginning of many future losses. By 1828, he'd moved back to London he continued to promote his socialist ideas, but over time became more and more radical to the point of madness. 
he became active in spiritualism, trying to communicate with the dead through seances. He even wrote several books on the subject. The once great Robert Owen lost his entire fortune and lived off a trust provided by his sons. In his final days, he would speak of his grand socialist plans and then the spirits of dead people that he'd contacted. William McClure, whom had co-founded New Harmony and attracted an impressive number of scientists and engineers, became ill in 1827, the same year the social experiment dissolved. He never quite recovered. He's remembered as the father of American geology, one of America's great mapmakers and philanthropists. He left money to establish 160 libraries, all memorials to his legacy, but the end of his life was much less dignified. At San Angel, Mexico, where he went to live for the warmer climate, his grave was robbed soon after he was buried. He was stripped of his fine clothes, and his naked body was thrown over the cemetery wall. In reality, there was something beyond the grave, dishonor. His body vanished without a trace, as if he was never born. And most of the libraries that he funded to immortalize his name were either renamed or torn down. Robert Dale Owen, Robert Owen's oldest son, followed in his father's footsteps. He helped run the town, became a social reformer, a member of the Indiana House and U.S. House of Representatives. He secured funding for the Smithsonian and was on the Smithsonian Board of Regents. That federal funding has continued nearly 200 years. Just like his father was also anti-religion, was involved in the spiritualism movement, and wrote two books disputing the New Testament. In 1875, he was admitted to the Indiana Hospital for the Insane. He died two years later. William Owen was editor of the New Harmony Gazette, superintendent of the general store, and also ran the town while his father was away. He tragically died at only 39 years old. David Dale Owen became the first geologist of Indiana, explorer, artist, medical doctor, and completed geology surveys all across the Midwest. He built his own museum at New Harmony for his massive collection of curiosities, collected across Indiana and the surrounding states but he tragically died at only 54 years old. His large collection of artifacts, his legacy, which took up an entire warehouse, have been lost to history. His brother Richard Owen fared no better. After David died, Richard became the second state geologist and first president of Purdue University. However, he died in 1890 from drinking formaldehyde. It was labeled as medicated water. And finally, Robert Owen's daughter, Jane Dale Fonterloy, who also helped run the town and created her own seminary, died at only 55 years old. Were these truly curses or just misfortunes of a small town? If you're looking for the unusual and curious, this is your sign. For a fact, there are things here you might not see anywhere else in the world. When William McClure died, he left funding for 160 working men's institutes. 
There were 144 in Indiana and 16 in Illinois. This one was established in 1838. It's the oldest continually operating library in the state of Indiana, and it houses a phenomenal museum of unusual curiosities. On the first floor, you can learn how looms work, as well as use the library. But on the second floor, prepare to be wowed by a museum worthy of Indiana Jones. You'll see everything from geology, paleontology, local history, and fine art, but also the truly bizarre. This is an eight-legged cow. These kind of defects don't happen very often. But when they do, they often don't live very long. Also on the second floor, you'll find two dead people. Dr. Edward Murphy was a local doctor and philanthropist who funded the Working Men's Institute. He died in 1910, and his wife also, only a few days later. They were then both cremated, their ashes combined in an urn, and now they are permanent residents of the museum. Right next door is the Edward Murphy Auditorium, built in 1911. It's certainly a legacy that's lasted well over 100 years. But the mysterious legacy of New Harmony continues in many places all over town. At the Athenaeum, you can take... All right, pausing, pausing. I know, I'm throwing a lot at you here. It's a weird place, New Harmony. And just to be clear, I guess I, I almost misunderstood. I, you know, it's almost as if Robert Owen's sons might have left an even bigger impact than Robert Owen, right? One of them was a House of Representatives uh, representative. And... uh Another was the state geologist, and I forget what the third one did, but you know, but they all died relative, you know, relatively young. It's just a wild tale here, you know. I'm sorry, I just, I just wanted to tell you all about it because I am, I am flabbergasted. <laughs> Excuse me, Rob. Did you uh, take care of your emergency? What was that about? Yeah, I went ahead and took uh, took care of that. Um, yeah. Neighbor had a uh, customer drop off a vehicle and leave the key in it. So <laughs> just Albuquerque things, you know what I mean? Just Albuquerque things. I'm thinking you're uh, using the term neighbor pretty loosely. No, he's all right. Oh, he's okay. All right. Huh. Well. There were some uh, disturbing images with the uh, the eight-legged cow, supposedly. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. In one shot, it almost looked like there might be seams. But I've also seen, um, well, speaking of formaldehyde, I've seen some examples of birth defects, and they definitely happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um... 
We're not even Formal- through half. We're not through half the weird shit yet. Formaldehyde. There's a Where connection did- to the Smithsonian, by the way. Yes. That I found very interesting. Yes. That that lit it up for me. Formaldehyde. Where was that from? Um, there was a thing. Was it a, was it an injection or something in the sixties when all those women were given? Oh, it was the lidamide. It's. I think the lidamide mixing yeah. it up. Hmm. I'm just gonna say that I think the Smithsonian is hiding a lot more than what they're telling people. Oh shit! Yeah, I definitely heard that. <laughs> it's they actually said I grew that. up on the magazine. I mean, but more I've never or less. Been there to like the institute or anything. I've been. It's well. It's like multiple buildings. I've been to three of the ten in Washington D.C. And then there's a ton more all across the country. But yeah, they control. They control the history. You know. Absolutely. I was watching a video. I can't remember exactly who it was, but they were saying that um, artifacts have been given to the Smithsonian for review, and they quote unquote disappear. The, uh, the artifacts are never seen or heard from again. And then they tried to contact the Smithsonian about the whereabouts of those artifacts. They're like, we didn't receive any artifacts. And then it's like, if it doesn't, if it doesn't line up with the narrative that the Smithsonian has uh, put out then that stuff gets disappeared. It gets lost. We must have been reading the same article, Fido. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's also uh, uh, Jason from Archaics has also mentioned quite a number of things during, you know, his incredible amount of information that pours out of that man um, many times about the Smithsonian's and one particular one was uh, the Grand Canyon. I think I might have mentioned this before where it's been, yeah, there's quite a number of caves there. There were a lot of artefacts which seem to apparently look very Egyptian uh, according mm-hmm. to the very, very couple of eyewitness accounts, Egyptian and also uh, Oriental, very ancient. Um, and, of course, they were sort of taken out in the, quiet and everything sealed up and smithsonians no those people never worked for us no but then it turned up in the records that they did in fact exist and work for the smithsonians <laughs> in that time well wouldn't so it they're always wouldn't, covering stuff up wouldn't it be something if i um had that was clips. In the late 1800s too sorry wouldn't it be something if i had clips about that exact thing you were just talking about there stella <laughs> that would be hilarious Actually, well, there was a story that I did with, uh, I think it was actually in the unknowns um, a few months ago, we sort of talked about all that. And um, yeah. yeah, that's sort of when it kind of really started getting on my radar about the Smithsonian. So yeah, looking forward to this. Be good. It's a whole roller coaster here. Yeah. I'll carry on if you, if you'll have me. Anybody, anybody, any, any, anything to say? Otherwise I'm hitting play. Go ahead. Right on, right on a guided tour of the town and its many unusual places. You can also rent a golf cart. The only stipulation, no pictures, video, or ghost meters in any of the old buildings. You can only wonder why that's a rule. Behind the Athenaeum is a mysterious structure called the Healing Palindrome. There are 20 stones in a semicircle. They tell a strange story about an alternative universe. Across the world, there are 140 similar sites on six continents and in 30 countries, all with very little explanation. A short distance from the Athenaeum is the Cathedral Labyrinth. 
It's modeled after the Labyrinth, at Chartres Cathedral in Paris. That one was built in the 12th century, over 900 years ago. With all of these structures, there's a very palpable spiritual element. But quite possibly, the most unusual structure is the Roofless Church. It is exactly like it sounds, a place of worship without a roof. Inside the walls are places to pray and meditate. The walls remind me of the Harmonist Cemetery. And at the western end, what looks like a giant dome with multiple interpretations. Mike? Sorry, just before we get too far, could we just spin back a couple of shots and read what was on that fountain, please? Okay. Oh, it was only like yep. 10 seconds ago. I think I got it right here. Yeah, that's it. It looks like in celebration of all grandparents for the great goodness that flows through, what's that? From them. And then there's from more, the, more, more up on top. Okay. Through and okay. from them. Yeah. Flows through. And from them. Mm. Right. Hmm. So of all grandparents for the great goodness. Okay. So basically all the goodness, yeah, may it go through the generations mm -hmm. sort of thing. Okay, thank you. We're, we're nearly to the end of this, um, but trust me, there's more. The walls remind me of the Harmonist Cemetery. And at the western end, what looks like a giant dome with multiple interpretations. It reminds me of the invisible dome, the one I envision above this town, one that dampens all sound and creates a sense of peace. A peace I've enjoyed for many decades on every trip to this town. And maybe having a mysterious, peaceful place to go isn't a bad thing, nor is realizing we'll never know or understand everything from abstract works of art. To the beliefs of other people. Somewhere is a place where our souls can rest. Yeah, um, New Harmony. You know, another word for harmony might be, um, I don't know, like resonance. That dome thing looks really awesome. Like, it's no yeah. kind of architecture I've ever seen before, and it's really neat. Like, I like it a lot somehow. <laughs> it is. It's amazing. It's just sort of reminded me of, you know, so many domes that are on the top of the building, and I was just thinking, well, who needs a building? Just need the dome. Oh, yeah. something because there is something about the domes and a lot of those buildings have spires and things on top that are supposed to you know attract energy from the electric sorry am i getting ahead again so if i had a nickel <laughs> if i had a nickel for every time every time 
you're so on it you're on it um, oh i love this stuff yeah yeah well it to me it's it's all connected as usual um you know i want to show you something that maybe is like an antithesis to new harmony um just for the sake of arguments you know sake i guess um a place that i've been i've never been to new harmony but it sounds like new harmony's got some spooky vibes possibly <laughs> yeah i want to show you a place that has like good vibes and an example of a let's say a wealthy philanthropist who didn't feel the need to create a utopian commune city but instead just bought a patch of woods and refused to cut it down this is the uh the biggest and oldest patch of woods in the state of indiana hey everybody steve and i are here at donaldson woods and this is part of spring mill state park in indiana and donaldson is this guy who came over from scotland and found this place to be just phenomenal the forest so big and so beautiful the trees so huge and this is also karst country so there is limestone underneath so there's caves and he protected this forest when it was not cool to do so everyone was stripping timber and he saw the magnificence of these trees and so we have steve right here in front of this beauty who is this white oak y'all look at that this is a white oak at least several hundred years old i mean it's just incredible and we have this understory of pawpaw and all these big tulip poplars and as you walk through here it's just it's otherworldly for people that come from the northern part of indiana where there's a lot of real fertile soil and not a lot of big forest tracks left you come here and see what the forest was and it's incredible and that forest will come back of that we have no doubt and so when we're here we've just really been savoring capturing the essence of this place as much as we can comprehend because that is rather hard to do but I hope if you come through Indiana, you make this stop. This Donaldson guy is our hero. <laughs> and as we travel about, we find more and more of these people that do these incredible acts without being part of the majority and they just do it. I'm gonna walk you up just a little bit further. So all of you that care, I know there's a ton of you that watch these videos that care do your own part we're all doing our own part and i think all of us together are magnificent so if you come know that you'll probably cry in a very very good way it'll crack your heart open and for that we are always grateful i will confirm okay i know that sounded like some hippy dippy bullshit, but i've been in those woods i'm definitely coming I can confirm. Bear, anytime. You're more than welcome. We're gonna we're gonna go. You know, we'll I, we'll hike I, out I there. That as Rob Breezy might say it. <laughs> well, it's yeah, a, it's a good time. Donaldson Woods. It's the best pawpaw harvest I ever had. And if you've never oh, tasted nice. a pawpaw, 
I just tasted oh. them for the first time this oh. past year. Yeah, they're, they're amazing. Amazing. Really Definitely gonna ferment some of those. Yeah. Make some make some mead. Exactly. Yes. I, I I sort of find it amusing, I should say, I guess, that people think that being in a forest and feeling good and hugging trees is woo-woo because maybe it's only woo-woo because those woo-woo people happen to be tuned into those things. <laughs> it's not because they're trying to be hippie. But, like, you, I mean, you find the most, the hardest person, and I can guarantee you, they won't just tromp through and destroy everything. Eventually they're just going to feel it, you know. I don't know. I think it's just it's just something that we're, we're so starved of and so deprived of that we in instantly recognise it within the core of our being that this is how it should be. So, yeah, kudos to that guy. Yeah, um, it's funny. I mean, I don't mean to sound like gay, but literally when I found that video, I mean, she she's only got like maybe a couple hundred views on that video. Also, same for our friend, Blind Uncle Harry. He does not get as much listening as he deserves. Um, or I'm sorry, not Blind Uncle Harry. That's another guy I know. But no, uh, Harry Bacharach, that's the guy. Um, these these are people I found through relatively specific kind of searches. And um, when I watched this video of this girl's reaction to Donaldson Woods, I actually shed a tear. Like, I'm not, I'm not lying, you know, because it took me back to how I felt picking pawpaws. It was like one of my best days ever on the planet. Picking pawpaws in Donaldson Woods, which I'm pretty sure was against regulation, you know. <laughs> pretty sure I wasn't supposed to do that because it's like a uh, protected forest, you know. But I wanted to eat them. <laughs> Isn't everything protected now? Like yeah. anything that you might enjoy, you can't have. We're going to throw well, you dude, in jail. For dude, I, I'm, I'm, I wrote something in my book about how a certain year, like the year that the place I lived in Utah, you know, and I'm telling it from the perspective as a you know, storyteller, but Capitol Reef, Utah, I think it was 1972 when it became officially a, a national park. And that officially marks the year where it became illegal to carve petroglyphs in the rock. Just think about that. I mean, I get it. They don't want a bunch of hooligans carving, you know, Mike was here, right? Right. But, but just on principle, on principle, something that people have done for thousands of years and did for good fucking reason, mind you. Okay? They they wanted us to read this shit years and years, generations later. It takes work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It takes hella work. It's funny that you mentioned that because... uh I had heard that there is a movement to get rid of printed books. They want everything online so that that way then they can modify it. It's up in the, in the cloud. I mean, they can modify it, quote, to fight misinformation and disinformation. What the hell is that about? Oh, it's just another it's burning at the libraries. Sounds like full on 1984, where uh, history is updated 
as the narrative changes. Many libraries. And it's been... funny that you mentioned that because that's exactly what they said. They said that they need to be able to control the narrative because they don't want the same things that happened during COVID to occur, where people are looking at old books and calling bullshit on it. I have um, two uh, nursing drug handbooks for 2021 and 2023. Can you guess what medication does not appear in either of those two books? I'd say ivermectin. Two. Hydrochloroquine <laughs> and ivermectin. Hydroxychloroquine does show up because it is used to treat people who have um, multiple sclerosis, but ivermectin does not show up in the nursing drug handbook. Go to your local wow. uh, tractor supply, you know, or not, yeah, not, bear before they take it out of there. Not medical advice. <laughs> um, it's life advice. Do you want to live uh, or do you want to be treated by medical staff? There's your choices. Hey, pet stores I hear are pretty useful too. And Canadian yes, pharmacies. You can get a lot of um, uh, antibiotics. Fish get mocks. the uh, anti-ick fish mocks. Yep, and make your own capsules. Boom. Like they're made, they're solved. trying to make it. They're actually trying to make it um, to where you have to have a prescription to get animal medication anymore. If you have to get it from a veterinarian, yeah. they're actually working on yeah. removing people's ability to just go out to the feed stores and buy antibiotics, like horse an antibiotics or cow antibiotics, to use. They're trying. They're actively working on that. I haven't followed up on that in a while, but I need to see where that's at right now. Goddamn, this is again not advice, but it's it's good. <laughs> Take it. <laughs> Should we carry on? You know, I don't want us to. Uh, yeah, let's go ahead. Lose yeah. the momentum here. I've got I've got more yeah. weirdness from the same guy. So this is a guy. He he's got you know what? Actually, he's got respectable numbers. Um, 300 or i'm sorry thirty-seven thousand subscribers but he lives in southern indiana it's a uh, adventures with roger okay but let me uh let me give you a little more here he's i as far as i can tell he's just a normal dude just making cool you know like little travel videos and stuff but he gets into the weird shit with this one just a moment Many say we've been lied to, that the ancient history of North America, the story of whom lived here before us, has been hidden. That tucked away at the Smithsonian, or University Storage Room, is an inconvenient and uncomfortable truth. That North America was in fact discovered way earlier than we'd been taught. And those people were not simple nomads crossing the Bering Strait. These were people that aligned structures they'd built to solstices and equinoxes from the heavens and created artifacts that tell the story of an advanced culture. From a cave in the Grand Canyon containing mummies and writing that looks Egyptian to a large rock in Kentucky with a petroglyph of Ra, the Egyptian sun god. Mummies found in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky that are documented and cataloged Documentation from Indiana Geological Surveys 
from over 100 years ago that tell similar stories of stone tombs and ancient bodies. Various mummies found in Indiana quarries for over 200 years and as late as 2015. And legends from old timers passed down for generations that a cave in southern Indiana is filled with ancient mummies. This is the story of a lost world, one we never knew. To be clear, the story of ancient America is not a simple one. Many different groups arrived at different times by bold exploration or rough seas that took them off course. Not everyone that came documented their trip, and the ones that did wrote on things that could not last the test of time. Or that documentation was simply lost to the ocean when their sailing vessels sank beneath the waves. They were lucky enough to make it here, but not lucky enough to make it back home. But the few evidences that are left bring us to a serious pause. There are stories about mummies all across North America, leading many to believe that ancient Egyptians, experts in mummification, reached the continent in antiquity. One of the more intriguing legends was reported about the Grand Canyon in 1909. The Arizona Gazette ran a story about G.E. Kincaid, an explorer, traveling the Colorado River. Along his journey, he spotted a cave high above the basin. It was about 2,000 feet above the river. He decided to leave his boat, climb, and investigate the cave. About 100 feet from the entrance, he found carved chambers that were not naturally occurring. On the walls were what looked like Egyptian hieroglyphics. And on large shelves, he found mummies wrapped in clay and bark fabric. All of them appeared to be men. There were statues that looked part Egyptian, but also Oriental. He found a variety of cups and vases made of both gold and copper. From this expedition, he sent artifacts to the Smithsonian for analysis. And that was the end of that. The Smithsonian has no record of these artifacts, nor of any explorer by the name of G.E. Kincaid. He simply vanished from history after the newspaper report of 1909. The story has largely been dismissed as a hoax and discredited. But people that have traced the river to this cave are intercepted by military personnel every single time. Is it because it's near the U.S. military's Yuma Proving Grounds, or because there's a complicated history that needs to be hidden. Some have speculated that the military base was made there because of the cave and what was found inside. But not all mummies found in America were as easy to dismiss. Mammoth Cave in Kentucky provided undeniable proof. From 1811 to 1935, a total of six mummies were discovered. They did not fit the profile of simple hunter-gatherers. Unlike other stories that were easily dismissed, these mummies were so well documented and even photographed that they left no room for debate. 
ranging from around 2,400 to over 4,000 years old. These mummies exhibited many strange attributes, such as woven clothing, cosmetics, and even a stone burial chamber. The most peculiar was a female mummy found within a stone tomb, sitting upright. Not only was she embalmed like the Egyptians, she was also wearing what looked like lipstick. She had short red hair and was at least six feet tall. She was enclosed in a woven shroud and seemed to be a person of great importance, certainly of great importance to archaeology. In 1815, the mummy was removed and displayed at Lexington, Kentucky. In 1816, the mummy was sent to the American Antiquarian Society at Worcester, Massachusetts. In 1876, it was displayed at the Centennial International Exhibition in Philadelphia. In 1893, at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Not only did the mummy get a lot of mileage, it was seen by thousands of people. And at some point, a picture was taken before heading to the Smithsonian. However, the current whereabouts of this mummy are unknown. It is nowhere in the Smithsonian catalog, and it's lost to history. This only adds to the mythos that whatever goes to the Smithsonian disappears at the Smithsonian. But the five other mummies are still safe and hidden deep inside Mammoth Cave. As you might imagine, suggesting that ancient Egyptians made it to North America is just asking for rebuttal. After all, where is the proof? Some people say that proof starts at Manchester, Kentucky. At Rawlings Stinson Park, sitting alone under an enclosure is a huge piece of rock, now known as the Redbird Petroglyphs. It was once attached to a sandstone cliff along Redbird River, but in 1994, this 50-ton rock fell onto Kentucky Route 66. Thankfully, no one was hurt, but it couldn't stay in the road. 20 feet long and five and a half feet tall, it has all kinds of mysterious, chiseled symbols on its surface. Some are thought to be Native American, but others are definitely not. Their origins are from somewhere else, very distant. There are at least eight extinct Old World languages. These were all dead languages before Christopher Columbus was even born. One in particular appears to show the Egyptian sun god, Ra. While impossible to attach dates or an author, it conjures up images of pharaohs sending ships across the ocean to look for new lands. While highly controversial, it's listed by the Smithsonian as Artifact 15CY51. There are many theories, but no consensus. But it's just one of many petroglyphs that make us question the true history of North America. There's a cave at Manchester that also exhibits these ancient languages. There are ancient petroglyphs at Painville, Kentucky on private land and many others throughout the region. Combined with stories from Illinois and Missouri that speak of Egyptian artifacts and mummies, the mystery only deepens. 
is this proof of ancient Egyptian exploration, or simply a people with very similar customs? Standing in the balance were strange findings in Indiana. When I first moved to southern Indiana back in 2009, I met a man that hunted for arrowheads. He said the secret to finding anything was to wait for a huge Ohio River flood. After the water went down, get in a boat and you'd find something. You just had to look along the muddy riverbank and be patient. With thousands of years of history, all it took was water to wash away the past. Over a span of more than 40 years, he and his brother had found a large number of arrowheads, including one of the finest spearheads he'd ever seen. He said that others had found even more ancient items. Universities were contacted. They rushed in, collected the artifacts, and neither they or these items were ever seen again. This led many people to keep things to themselves. On one occasion, as their boat skimmed along the Ohio River shoreline, this man and his brother, both teenagers, saw bones sticking out of the riverbank. It didn't take a degree to know they were ancient. He and his brother took the skull and bones home. They put them in a box in their parents' basement. Over time, they graduated high school, went to college, married girls from Louisville, had kids, and retired without ever thinking about the bones at mom and dad's house. Unsurprisingly, she insisted he come and get it immediately. So he and his brother, both of them now grandparents, took the box of bones back to where they found them. They walked up the riverbank and reburied the skeleton. Hopefully, this would buy this ancient person a few hundred years of peace. But their discovery was not unique. People had been finding skeletons in stone tombs for well over 200 years. In fact, hundreds of skeletons were found along the shoreline as people built homes and businesses. Apparently, this area was a large burial ground and had been for thousands of years. Most intriguing were what some called the Tombs of Kings. These were burial chambers made of stone, and the skeletons were placed in a sitting position, just like the mummy at Mammoth Cave. Some of these were described as giants, but none of these specimens can be verified today. While many strange things were reported as early as the 1700s, it wasn't until 1837 that Indiana did something about it. By an act of legislature, formal studies began. These reports are the stuff of legends. In 1837, David Dale Owen of New Harmony was hired to survey Indiana's geology and prehistory. Born at Scotland in 1807, he was a genius, a polymath. Educated in Switzerland, Glasgow, Scotland, and London, England, he studied the natural sciences, geology, and chemistry. He had a voracious appetite for knowledge, especially the unusual and the ancient. 
1835, he earned a medical degree at Cincinnati, Ohio, but his true passion was the natural sciences and the strange things found across America under our feet. In his lifetime, he conducted geological surveys in Iowa, Wisconsin, Missouri, Minnesota, Illinois, Arkansas, Kentucky, Illinois, and Indiana. He was an epic explorer and collected a huge amount of fossils, artifacts, and skeletal remains. In 1846, he not only helped design the Smithsonian, but chose the quarry for its stone. He was also on the Smithsonian Board of Regents and very important to its founding. In fact, he and his brother Robert helped secure federal funding for its operation. Y'all think this mm. might be an AI video? What do you think? I mean, the voice is a little choppy. Like, I listened to it at regular speed uh, when I first, you know, found it. And we're playing it at 1.25. So that could account for some of the choppiness. But, like, I don't know. Yeah, look, probably because most of what's on, is this YouTube? Yeah, most yeah. of what's on YouTube yeah. is, is AI, I've noticed. And um, the thing is that there's a lot of different AI voices because um, you can make your own voice AI. So if I was making a whole bunch of videos, instead of sitting there and editing and doing my own voice, if I was clever and into it, um, I would be doing my own AI voice. So it just mm -hmm. makes it easier. There's less editing, etc. So quite possibly. Uh, where was I going to, what was that? Oh, I, I think I might see where you're going now with this, perhaps. Is it to do with stones? Well, yeah. So one of the things that piqued my interest was this um, healing palindrome. Oh, yes. And I looked into it a little bit and um, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Uh, I don't really have anything specifically covering that particular healing palindrome. But, you know, what it got me thinking was, well, what the fuck's a palindrome? Like, I know that word, you know, it's basically something that's the same forwards and backwards. Yeah. Right. A mirrored image. Of yeah. Something. It also has a what? lot to do with uh, what's it called? Cylindrical mathematics, I think it is, um, hmm. which, again, Archaics uses um, to... It's sort of like you. there's certain years, which I can't explain how they pick them, but there's certain years. I know 1998 is one, so let's use that one. Um, it's like a reflective thing, and you'll find that if you look forward, I don't know, let's just pick for randomly 17 years, 18 years, right? And then you look back, 17 years, 18 years, whatever, you'll be able to find correlations of things, and it's surprising. Like it's you can say that and you can sort of try to figure it out, but then he, he brings those examples and he brings the history and he brings, like he cites everything and it's just, it's incredible how these palindromic reflective things are always the same, which then takes you into, you know, simulation theory, et cetera, but that's a whole other thing. Um, so, yeah, it's the, it's the mathematics and unfortunately it's very hard to say, well, that's a bunch of rubbish because you can't really argue with mathematics. So that's why I can't sort of discount it as, as heretical as it might sound. I'm interested in it. Well, there's, um, hmm, I don't know. There's a whole lot to this, you know, so palindromes, they're basically, um, I don't know, like, uh, linguistic symmetry. Like taco cat. There you go. 
it's the it's, same it's, forward it's as the back. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's symmetry. It's circular. It's uh it's the same whichever way. Um, which is kind of a funny thing. I don't know. Like I jumped ahead a little bit in this video. I'm only gonna share like a snippet more, but then I'm gonna show you some real mathy weird shit, and I'll be curious to to get y'all's take. Uh, in particular, Rob, because I know you're very interested in. Uh, all this shit so we're gonna get into the to the to the frequency at at, at hand if you unreal will. because yeah. if i may say the little tiny thing that i brought is going to tie in beautifully with that so awesome. when you're awesome. and i want to be able to catch rob with that so yep cool cool, cool. we're great. almost there we're almost there first calling it a geological reconnaissance it would later become the indiana geological report Printed in high volume, these reports are located in universities across America. These would become the basis for some of the most amazing prehistoric discoveries Indiana had ever known. From the very beginning of European exploration and pioneer settlements of Indiana, strange things were found in the wilderness, but not formally documented. From abandoned ancient cities to burial mounds with mummified bodies and unusual jewelry, stories spread of an ancient advanced people that existed well before the Indians. The Indians themselves didn't know who built these structures and gave them special reverence. But for those that had never seen an ancient tomb or mummy, it was just a good campfire story. With the 1869 hiring of Indiana State Geologist Edward Travers Cox, things were about to get weird. He expanded the geology report, describing prehistoric creations by an unknown people. There were earthworks that were built to track equinoxes and solstices. Stone walls enclosing ruins of ancient villages, which he called stone forts. At Charlestown, there were remnants of what was considered a castle. Its most impressive feature were walls over 75 feet tall. Near DuPont, Indiana, there were prehistoric stone walls hundreds of feet long in the woods. He surveyed Wyandotte Cave in Harrison County, detailing not only its abundance of saltpeter, gypsum, and epsonite, but the ancient people that mined chert deep within its interior. He described hundreds of ancient bodies found at Vincennes. Some of his artifacts went to the Working Men's Institute at New Harmony. But what's here are not mummies or proof of ancient civilizations. We find minerals, fossils, and skeletons of animals. In fact, very little is here from Edward's lifetime of exploration. Gloria Stadium, my friends. Today is the 20th of February, 2022. And today I want to talk about the upcoming palindrome portal of February 22nd. We're going to experience six twos. 
Atakahasa Niera Takachikira. Today is we've been in this two portal all month long. Niera Takachiara Okay, so and today is the twentieth. Today's date only is encompassed by twos. Matter of fact, it's got five twos in it. And when we rearrange these twos, you know, five twos, the graph, mathematics, is a pentagram, and it represents humanity. It represents change also. Five. But two is duality. Two is coupling. It's union, cooperation, balance, harmony. So we have five different viewpoints of balance and harmony today. And we're going to have six on Tuesday. Nihara ata achiyasaha. Kutu tukushka nananari hariyara tikiyariya. Venus and Mars are still together. They'll be together through the end of the month and through March 3rd. And interestingly, from Earth's viewpoint, Venus has a, what appears to be a pentagramal orbit. Five is the human number. And the pentagram represents the five elements in Wujing, uh, traditional Chinese medicine, which is the basis of Tai Chi, Qigong, Kung Fu. Um, most of Chinese medicine, all of Chinese medicine, and Chinese martial arts. It's the basis of the I Ching. And Pentagram is also used in Wicca, and it does represent the four elements, earth, fire, water, air, and spirit. And it's the human number. So this duality, this divine masculine, this divine feminine, this human experience that we're all having, this invitation from the universe to adopt, embrace, embody a higher love, a higher mind, engage spirit more, engage our intuition more, Follow our heart. Today, we're also going to talk about two Hawaiian words that mean so much. It means so much to me. I've written about it a couple of times. We've got aloha. 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 And aloha means the sharing, sharing the presence of breath, sharing the presence of divine breath. It's a greeting. It's, we say it when we say goodbye. It is so important to the Hawaiians. They made it a law, the spirit of aloha law. Links are down in the description. So alo means sharing or in the present or presence. 
oha is joyous affection or joy. Ha, just like in light language, it is the life energy, life. It's the breath. It's the breath out. Okay. I'm pausing because <clears throat> I'm sure maybe some of the listeners are saying, what is this about? What is going on here? We're talking Alaho and Aloha, which are palindromes of each other. In, in essence, not, not exactly in the English language, but in the Hawaiian language. Um, and there's a point, there's a point to this physical representation with the pentagram. And we're going to get into a hexagram, otherwise known as a star of David. Um, but these are, these are, these are shapes that can be generated through sound you know, there's significance to all this, and I'm going to try to like point it out. We're going to we're going to talk about something called star forts, you know, and I'm trying to draw a lot of things together. You know, first and foremost, I'll point out on that big chunk of rock. I couldn't help but see there was a hexagram. Or I'm sorry, a pentagram, rather. Yeah, a pentagram on that rock. And uh, anyways. It's all to me kind of interesting. You know, I'm just kind of playing with the concepts that are out there uh, and it's hard to explain, but like, what, what are y'all's impressions at this point? Rob, you want to give us any science on it? If there is such a thing, these, these geometric concepts, I haven't given you the whole picture quite yet. So, well, I get, the fact that he's using the five points, right? And that is the number of man, right? In uh, most non-Western religions, right? For some reason, in Western slash Middle Eastern religions, the number of man is six. So almost sounds like an intentional uh, perversion of some sort well he's he's and getting if you've ever noticed six he's getting to six it's coming next okay yeah yeah and that's i mean that's really all i've got so far i mean it seems somewhat coincidental just yet yeah we'll see. i'll show you some more and has anybody here heard about star forts or am i yep okay yeah so also five is a harmonic yeah right so yeah. you're Best harmonics for like chords are going to be fifths, etc. Right, sevenths. So, so we started tonight. You know, again, Fido and and Rob, you got here a little late. We started with sound. You know, basically just this concept of sound. You know, and this this whole thing. You know, it got me thinking about. I think it's James one. You know, in the beginning there was the word, and the word was made flesh. And, and I'm, I'm thinking about physics and mathematics, even though I don't quite understand this stuff, but I understand it's what the entire plane of existence that we're on is kind of built off of. And the importance of the fact that there's really very little difference between energy and matter, right? And, you know, the difference between light and sound. You know, it's, it's all kind of fuzzy. So it's interesting to look at it from this perspective because I'm very interested in the fact that perhaps Hawaiian as a language 
might have a lot of math involved. Never mm. considered this, never considered this, but this is the argument being made. Interesting. I mean, obviously the elements are all tied in with the pentagram, like the, I mean, you know, all the martial arts, etc. run on the, the five elements, which are what air, water, fire, earth, and well, the ether is generally what it turns out to be force. Um, so yes, that's very uniform through many, many of the cultures. That's about all I wanted to add, just to state the obvious. All right, I'll carry it on. But here in Hawaiian, it's both the breath in and the breath out in for the meaning of aloha and mahalo. And mahalo, the blessing, because ma means in. Ma is a divine feminine aspect. So it means may you be in divine breath. Both are so important. One of the early teachings in Hawaiian culture is aloha is being a part of all. And all being a part of me. When there is pain, it is my pain. When there is joy, it is also mine. I respect all that is a part of the creator and a part of me. I will not willfully harm anyone or anything. When food is needed, I will take only my need and explain why it is being taken. The earth, sky, and the sea are mine to care for, to cherish, and to protect. This is Hawaiian. This is Aloha. Now a little bit of light language. Speak to the deepest aspects of your soul. Continue the light language in a moment. We want to drive the point home. Aloha, five letters. Or five twos today. In two days, we'll add another two. To get six. Katikiaranita. Niara atakai. Ushuku uta nananira. And we'll get six twos. And mahalo. The six letters. Niharahat. Uchahata hashiiti arihanayatu. Uchika, niarawa anahia. Utur hatuna nuru husai. Tatahatana tati iriarahana sake. Nihirahasa akatetira. Ishkoro aharan. Aloha and mahalo. Once embraced, once embodied, and once emanated. It is the law of one. It is being in the heart center. 
It is everything that the age of Aquarius is about. And in the movie Avatar, the Navi said to each other, translated, I see you. I see the essence in you. I see the magnificence in you. My heart is open, your heart is open, and I see everything. And when we find other individuals that are embracing aloha and mahalo and embodying aloha and mahalo and emanating aloha and mahalo, it is a beautiful thing. Anahasa. Itor tukushaharahuta. Iriyar nahata atakashka hata arihitukuru. Utana nawara aratakihiratukuru. So when we remove the limitations of our physical nature, and we still remember aloha, I'm going to take it away from this. Pentagram is a continuous flow of energy from one point to the next and goes back to the, the origin. In the hexagon, even though it's six sides, the Merkaba, Star of David, the hexagram is a better representation of the 6-2 graph. This is our light body. This is who we truly are. And even better than that, even better than that, it's our heart center. Anahata, mahalo, comes from the heart. Aloha, comes from the heart, comes from our true authentic self. Okay, I know, I know it's a little, uh, I'm reaching here, guys. I'm reaching a bit. I recognize it. What I'm very interested in is is just the geometry at play that he's making attempt, you know, an attempt to kind of illustrate. And I don't know if he's full of shit or not, but um, I don't know. What do you, what do y'all have to say? Well, I feel that somewhere around about very now ish. <laughs> Um, is a good time to insert the very, very short thing that I've brought because it will fit in, slot in very perfectly. Okay. All right. Where where can I find that? You have it here. I will put it, yes. I'll put it in the uh, private chat. Okay. Right. There we go. And, um, yeah, this is what blew my mind and I was scraping my brains off the ceiling the other day. It was just a really quick um, sort of, you know, one of those things where it just, you feel the penny drop, like, you see something and you just go, oh, you have to unmute this too. So it's yep, a bit already done. Already oh, okay. done. Yeah, look, just let's just watch this sort of stop rambling. Okay. Have you seen this? Let me explain. These are 3,500-year-old balls representing the platonic solids centuries before Plato invented them. The platonic solids are the framework for energy to flow to, to make the shapes that we see around us every day. This is the hydrogen version of that. Now you probably learned 
the periodic table of elements using this shitty confusing thing. This is how we view it vibrationally. The top is the gases and these are the heavier elements down here. Now, the more energy you add to the system, the more complex the geometry gets. Now we illustrate this in spheres. Think about like a molecule diagram, how you learn that. But there's internal geometry I showed you in cymatics. Now this is a DNA strand. That is the top down view of the DNA strand. It looks a lot like a mandala. It's because that mandala represents a frequency that you can resonate with. You experience this phenomenon in music. You experience a stimulus in the environment, let's say like a breakup. The stimulus creates a feeling, which is just a chemical or molecule, and then these sad tones will then resonate with those molecules. I think that's how it works. That's it. And then I went and had a look at that website, and that was really interesting as well. There was a few things that were sort of like, mm, yeah, you know, as a, mm. oh, as a Christian, it's sort of like, yeah, yeah. But I'm open-minded. Like I don't, mm. will never get to the point where I say that I know everything because nobody does. So um, I found that very interesting, and I actually I'm going to probably get one of the things that are on that website because it goes, <clears throat> excuse me, it goes right into the somatics and everything, which I was very much wanting to pursue anyway. I do at some point want to really absorb myself in that. But um, what blew my mind really about this was when looking at that table of elements, that new way of writing it. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, I don't know if you've come across that before, Rob, but it, like, I don't know if it was sort of really that relevant to it, but the way they had laid it out, I just immediately saw the, uh it's gone out of my head now. The symbol for the medicine, you know, the yeah, we've been talking about the snake. Yes, the snake. Caduceus. Snake. Yeah. Sorry. Caduceus. That's thank you. Yeah. Uh, that's it. So I, I sort of saw that, and I was thinking, I don't know if that's sort of relevant or that just happened to be the way they laid it out, but it just really made sense. And then looking down on the DNA strands and seeing the sacred geometry was just like, wow. You know, it's just everything kind of came together. It all just really tied together for me in that little. It alludes to the fact that maybe most of our religions and or the iconography in our religions is actually a form of a of a uh, cargo cult. Where we're looking at the representations of ancient technology and worshiping it because we really don't know how it works. Mm. So we just mm. made something up around it, right? Exactly. And like that, that you know, the we must all know the uh, carving. I can't remember the name of it, damn it. The carving of the um, Egyptian Egyptians with the battery. It's the something battery. Yes. Um, it's the place Bagdad where battery. it was found. Baghdad battery, right. Um, yeah, yeah, that's got the squiggly thing in it as well, and you know our DNA strands, and it's, it's all like just you know microcosms. Amplification tube, right? Yeah. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Looks like a big a tube. Coil. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then you've got the things on top of tube all the buildings. The yep. So once again, we're right on track, y'all. I mean, this is like this is what we're talking about here. Okay. I. It's this is kind of gonna make sense of what i'm getting at i hope <laughs> yeah so just yeah. before we sort of yeah gloss over that chart um that was like a frequency for every chemical i believe like i mm -hmm. didn't i really didn't get a chance to go into it fully, based but... on based on atomic density it makes total sense i mean yeah right, right? yeah and energy level energy level right. changes based on the frequencies and yeah it would be like learn... the conduct 
chemistry backwards. Yeah. That, yeah, that's what it feels like. So it's like the, what is it, the, the currency of each element, I guess, like the conductivity. Is that right? Um, the, the energy level. It has okay. to do with the energy level. Hmm. The energy level then sets the resonant frequency. So yeah. that's so how this it is works what, usually. This must have been what Royal Rife was on to. Yes. This is all the medical. See, I'm really interested in this whole acoustic healing thing. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it may be all woo-woo, but I think there's more to it. There's more to there, it than there just new be. agey crap. There must be more to it. I mean, yeah. yeah. Let I mean, me, I've known me, someone who, who has healed themselves through through thinking and, and vibrations and things from cancer. So, and that was years ago, like years ago. And she did it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, so th- that's why I thought the, uh, if I can tell you why the Alaho Aloha thing is interesting, because I didn't know anything about it, but, uh, you know, may you be in divine breath, you know, translated meaning like, may you be present. May you be attuned. Harmony. 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 Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. It's what they were preaching in New Harmony, Indiana. You know, it's almost like that religious cult had something going for it. They just weren't sustainable because they weren't having kids, but they what they were seeking was peace and harmony, which I can yes. respect. Oneness, union, unison, synthesis. Like you know, I think there's certain there's certain like implications when you say oneness, but attunement for sure. You know, yeah. um, I don't know. It is to some extent, you know, the that push and pull between individual self and everything else, right? Um, well, it's that ultimate well, thing to the holy grail is to be in un- union with God, in alignment well, with the divine being. Well, and with the video where it was talking about the um, the guy who started it, and he was talking, they were saying that he was um, not prone to listen to other people's opinions. It's almost like he liked the idea of it, but when it came down to the actual work of it, he didn't want to do that. And that's why it failed, because he every, not everybody was on the same page, especially the person who came up with the whole plan to begin with. And there's got to be communication. There's got to be compromise and coordination among the members of a group like that. And most people, it doesn't, it's not going to work in today's society because people don't want to do that. They don't want to be selfless. They don't want to step outside of themselves to uh, be able to pull something like that off. Now, I'm sure there's a, there is a group of people that could do it, but it's really hard to find. Yeah. That's what's interesting about New Harmony is that there were these two different social experiments. And they failed for different reasons. But I almost think that the religious folk might have like had a good life and might have really like sunk into the soul of that that patch of ground, you know, and that's why like this power exists. And I think there were people there doing that before as well. That's why I'm pointing out like there was a lot of ancient stuff going on around New Harmony and and a lot of what they called, you know, forts remnants of these old forts um there's something going on as far as what our ancestors were doing why they why they put so much time and energy into into building these earthworks and that's kind of oh, where absolutely. i'm going that's where i'm going next but uh, by all means if anybody has thoughts well i was only just recently when i was um interviewing heidi love recently with ashley 
Shout out, Ashley. Wish you were here. Um, Tanya Harris is a lady who sits in old buildings, cathedrals, etc., and she records their frequency. Um, it's called The Architecture of Sound, if anyone wants to look at it on YouTube. The Architecture of Sound, Tanya Harris. Um, and she sits there and records the frequency and then she bas- basically layers and layers and layers so it becomes audible because it takes a few layers to make it audible. Um, and she turns, like she's got this incredible, like turns it into art and all sorts of things, but she's very wrapped up in this whole thing of buildings having frequencies and buildings being healing places of healing rather than they've sort of been turned into places of worship but the sort of worship and healing was kind of intertwined wasn't it it wasn't a separate thing like it kind of is now there's medicine and then there's the church it's like back then it was all the same kind of thing the oneness um so anyway that's just her thing she comes up with all these frequencies of different buildings etc and um anyway well, clearly yeah. clearly these old cathedrals I mean, just look at them. They're like giant, like tuning forks. I mean, yeah, yeah they're, and built, I, they're built like some kind of receiver, you know? Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the um, windows and things are all the, you know, the the symmetry and the shapes. Um, I mean, you can't get around things like the flower of life, etc., because it's all geometry, you know? It's all intertwined in nature. We can't, there's no way of saying that it's not or the calling it woo-woo because it's there in nature. It's integrated. It's within us, you know. So um, I think people who keep calling all this stuff woo-woo and it's all, you know, heretical or whatever, it's like they're the, they should shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's give them a little more well, fat to chew on. I'll, I'll say yeah. the last time I cried yeah. might have been in a church listening to music. Wow. That was shaped acoustically like that, like those mm-hmm. cathedrals and stuff. So yeah, like yeah, uh, yeah. there's something to it. It's mm-hmm. a, it's yep. a it's a different experience for sure. And I mean, it was meaningful too. But yeah, yeah, the resonance. And you know, I wonder how much it's changed by things like putting pews in churches. That must have offset certain frequencies and harmonics and what have you, and sympathetic waves that go with other waves. It's all. That, I mean, that's why they've got all those. Everything's been built in certain angles and with domes and things, and that's all that part of the acoustics as well. So I'm sure they understood it like, you know, we speak a language. Like that dome in one of the earlier videos, that really cool mm-hmm. dome that was just its own thing. Mm-hmm. All right, let me, uh, let me throw this at you here. We've reached part three in our series about star forts. In part one, we discuss how Atlantis might have been the first star fort and the originators of the advanced technologies that star forts incorporate. In part two, we looked into some Native American stories about inner Earth and how many star forts sit on former sacred sites of the natives. We also discussed how star forts may have been used to protect against a worldwide cataclysm and could have been built as flood walls or drainage mechanisms and to house people underground in the cavern and tunnel systems most of them connect to. This next theory about star forts is about the technology they incorporated. The people who built these star forts used techniques for water pumping and terraforming, and they had knowledge of celestial alignments as well as sacred geometry and resonant frequencies. And on top of that, they could manifest these technologies into incredibly precise structures like star forts and also cathedrals and earlier Greco-Roman architecture. The builders of these star forts also had knowledge of ley lines and earth energies and was cultivating some kind of energy, either actual electricity as some speculate 
where spiritual energy like chi or prana is referred to in Eastern traditions. Whatever was going on with these star forts, we can see they were using technology that should not have been known, and are said to not have been created until later inventors like Tesla and Da Vinci came along. But we know ancient people were more advanced than given credit for by mainstream historians. Many ancient peoples understood stars and their alignments just as well as we do today. Cultures like the Mesoamericans, the ancient Egyptians, the Chinese, Indians, and Stone Age Europeans all understood the alignments and rotations in the heavens, and could predict things like eclipses and natural disasters. They would also build their structures in alignment with the equinox and the cardinal directions. The ancient structures also incorporated some of the same technologies we see in cathedrals and star forts today, such as frequency technology. Examples being the Mayan and Aztec pyramids reflecting sound as terrifying noises back at you. Or the theory that the pyramids are some kind of Tesla coil technology. These theories basically <laughs> conclude that pyramids were a source of free energy for the ancient people. And later... Can you pause it for a second? Okay, I'm glad he said something about the pyramid because I, I did want to make a point. I had seen a video uh, not too long ago, maybe six, seven months ago, and it's on YouTube. I'll see if I can find it. There was a guy talking about the equator and he said following the equator if you go all the way around using google earth you can see where um there are uh places that look like they used to be that are underwater now that were possibly not underwater at one point in time and he said if you he goes through and he looks, he's, he's showing you where the different points on the globe kind of line up. And he was saying things like Angkor Wat and the pyramids are along the same line. And he said, uh, there's evidence to believe that approximately 12,000 years ago, the North Pole and the South Pole were actually at vastly different locations. And that the Earth actually tilted on its axis or tilted in a way that where the equator was used to be where you know the line around the earth the e where the equator used to be that used to be like the prime meridian and if that is true if the if the points like the top and bottom that picture that it just showed a minute ago where it had the uh, magnetic field and it shows the magnetic field coming off the north pole and coming back around to the south pole if you turn the earth to where the he is saying that the north pole used to be it lines up with where the pyramids are and if the pyramids are some kind of amplifier like people think that they used to be that would explain why they built the pyramids that way because they're harnessing some kind of electromagnetic energy or sound waves or something to create some kind of energy rob back me up on this i see they're you shaking your head yeah they're based <laughs> yeah they're <laughs> They're basically harnessing the flux that goes through the top of the pole. And what it would be doing is it would actually be directed through the um, pyramids right. and then have to go through the rest of the earth. There's like a, a current that flows and it circles like this through the core. Right from the north to the south pole so if you can and, harness that yeah that would be huge and then also it, there was an article on uh, vox.com where they were talking about the pyramids they had examined the pyramids were examined by a group of scientists and they actually 
uh, bombarded the the Great Pyramid of with um, with um, some kind of X-rays or uh, infrared or something. They it was I can't remember what it was. Lida was neutrinos, but they were saying that there was a big massive space inside the pyramids that nothing could go through. They could see everything else. They could see the tunnels. They could see the openings. But there was this big, massive black space in the middle of the Great Pyramid that they could not figure out what was there. Um, so as I far as I know, the Great Pyramid used to be the tip was covered in gold. Right. Yes. Um, I know that it was covered in alabaster as well on the outside. Kind of like, <clears throat> kind of like a lot of um, old churches, either topped with gold or with uh, copper. Copper. Yeah. Especially Orthodox churches. Yep. And mosques. Yeah, there's no doubt that they've all been tapping into an energy. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. It's been hidden from us, and there's no doubt about that either, I think, at this point. I'm I'm convinced, man. I mean... I'll tell you another interesting thing about the Great Pyramid is the mathematics of it inside. Using the Pyramid Inch, uh, can't think of the guy who created the Pyramid Inch, but it's basically the standard that everybody goes by as far as measuring Egyptological things, and um, if that's a word. <laughs> and um, the mathematics all correlate with um, t uh, spans of time and events that have happened, like huge events, biblical events, etc. Um, again, you know, I can't rail off all the, the facts, but it is incredible when you look into the code of the Great Pyramid internally and what's being found now and what's been sort of hidden but coming out um, through various methods. Uh, yeah, you're right about the toroidal energy and the, um, uh, they're harnessing something to do with the water, I think, or some chambers underneath. Some, uh, uh, It's all quite covered up. <laughs> well, the, Again. The, the dimensions alone, like, seem to be some kind of message or, yep. you know what and I'm saying? Angles. Like, everything about, you know, that's why I find these petroglyphs so um, wild. It's like somebody really took their time now a petroglyph ain't nothing compared to a fucking pyramid i mean damn they were making a statement they didn't do it for nothing you know yeah it all becomes code um it all it's mm. like mathematics it's all code and this is what this is why i can't let the simulation theory as much as i hate it i can't let it go either because mm. when things correlate this exactly with mathematics and history events. And this is not just history that's come from the internet. This is stuff that's come out of really old books and scrolls and translations from people who can speak the language directly, like speak Sanskrit and all that kind of stuff. So like going back a long way. And there's been a lot, also a lot of misinformation by certain people um, who, whether they've done it intentionally or not, it's been proven that they've miscalculated certain things, but they're not going to change because they've got a whole empire built around it now, whether it's intentional or not to also disinform, I don't know, but the truths are coming out um, and they're quite indisputable when it's backed up by, well, citations. Yeah. Um, that none of them are from the internet. <laughs> so Well, uh, should we, we carry on? What, uh, what's at the south and north pole? If there's pyramids there too, we can't really find out. Yeah, they won't show us that shit. 
Huh. I reckon there's one on Mars. <laughs> Fido, what were you uh what were you saying there? I was just saying I just wanted to mention that about the pyramids because it just it, it hit me that he's talking about frequency and and mm-hmm. and it just it just lined up so well with what I had already seen. Mm-hmm. I think we might be on some kind of track here. Uh, you also, know, I'm, um, we've yeah. heard that the poles are shifting, right? Magnetically, anyway. Yes, they are. So mm. that means the alignment of these things um, and where they might be might be changing. That'd be something. Uh, this is something that, well, actually, this is a note that I had from a while ago is there's a lot of noise with all this frequency shit. Um, which frequencies are more resonant with what parts of our body, what parts of nature and stuff. Um, informationally, there's a lot of noise. Yes. Um, there's a lot of talk about the 432 Hertz, et cetera, that a lot of musicians are tuning to now and all that sort of thing. Right. And I've been doing some of that too. And, but also then I've been getting into some of the red light therapy and, from what I'm finding, 432 isn't one of those frequencies, but 440 is kind of right in there. 440. Yeah. Well, that's as, concert pitch. Yeah. Or other ones that are, yeah, exactly. Um, I heard 414 like is something. One. I think there's some mud being thrown out in amongst all this information as well. Um, I'm not sure. I've tried yeah, the 432 yeah, I thing as well. I don't know what to think right now. <laughs> yeah. 432 makes it hard to play along with things or with other people, so it's a bit of a pain. You can't really tune a saxophone. That's that's kind of where (laughs) I've come to with it too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, there's there's a lot of um, speak about different frequencies. So I think there's probably a lot more information is going to come out about that. You'd have to be pretty (laughs) science-y to really do experiments, you know. It's cracking me up how actually I think musicians have as much right to speak about this kind of topic as geologists or you know physicists or you know you guys do understand um more about frequencies than most so that i'm just going to point that out but i don't know should we carry on here one thing that's particularly note about notable about like 432 versus 440 just for the musicians Mm. wherever is they are very dissonant they're mm-hmm. they're not just different frequencies; they're dissonant frequencies. Do you want to what, explain that, Bear? Yeah, yeah, go on. Um, that means they sound noisy and might hurt your ears if played. They sound at the in same conflict time. with each other. Yeah, it's like played together, so they're not like the sympathetic frequency; they're the opposite. Is that right? Right, what, like you're an not getting, antagonistic you're not frequency. Harmony. Yeah, was that the town? Wait, wait, called, is it? Is that the word? Bill? Is is that the word? <laughs> harmony? I think that New might harmony. be the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah, they're just off. So they're not like mm-hmm. a, a whole semitone or anything. They're just just off. Mm-hmm. It's hard to tell the difference. People say, "Ah, oh, the four thirty two sounds nicer," but I think that might be a little bit placebo-y. Not sure. It's a little power of suggestion, perhaps. I'm not sure. All right, let's uh let's move on here. And uh, once again, you know, sound, light, electricity, magnetism, it's all the same bullshit, if you ask me. These theories basically conclude that pyramids were a source of free energy for the ancient people, and later cathedrals used this technology. 
They point to the antenna-like golden top that sits atop cathedrals and pyramids, as well as the many nodes made of substances that can hold a charge and conduct electricity. Many even speculate that the structures themselves could have held a charge due to their high composition of quartz, like we find in the majority of these pyramids and ancient temples. The shape and inner workings of, for example, the Great Pyramids has also been theorized to be some kind of generator or battery technology, possibly cultivating energy from Earth itself. Archaeologists have even found chambers in the pyramid with zinc and copper residue, further advancing this theory. Some have also said the layouts of these sites, like Teotihuacan, for example, is very similar to a circuit board, and they have found large amounts of mica on site here, which is used in the installation of electronics today. And this is not the only site we found this. Mica has also been found at the many mound sites across America, also at Mohenjo-Daro in Pakistan, in Petra, Jordan, and many Inca sites as well. So, because of these similarities in technology, some speculate that star forts were also built by an advanced and possibly ancient civilization. This technology could have been passed down and slowly regressed into the smaller and misshapen star forts that come in at a later time period. The earliest star forts could have possibly been built in perfect alignment and in perfect symmetry, and as time progressed, additions had to be made or cataclysms could have erased memories of earlier civilizations and caused technologies to be forgotten. We see this strange regression of technology all over the world, where the oldest sites are the biggest and most advanced, and as time goes on, technologies are forgotten. This points to a lost advanced people existing in our past. Tesla himself was inspired by ancient texts, and it is said that he was a scholar of the Vedas and Upanishad texts, which describe these advanced technologies in detail, like superweapons and flying machines that date back to a time of forgotten history, when gods lived with humans as do all the other ancient religions and cultures. But what technologies exactly did Starforce incorporate in their design? There are a few obvious ones like the massive moving of Earth to build channels and dikes in the creation of the forts, as well as their placement on waterways or protruding out into the ocean in some cases. They had to move huge amounts of Earth to create these and even form new waterways and canals. And they did it all in perfect geometric shapes. In the Sumerian text, the Anunnaki god Inki is responsible for creating the rivers, and it says he dug giant canals to bring water and irrigate the cities as well. Starforts were a form of terraforming and changed entire water systems, bringing water to every part of the city and creating waterways for passage. But the real ingenious secrets lay in the shape of the structure. The star pattern bastions are impressive enough on their own. There are many that say they had other motives for building in this fashion, and incorporated designs that allowed for the pumping of water and even the purification of it. These star fort shapes also relate to sacred geometry and frequency technology that must have been used to come up with these intricate designs and allowed them to do certain things thought to be impossible at that time. These star designs are detailed and precise. They remind me of things created by AI using a 3D printer. AI has given us things like better designed wind turbines, and can create more efficient technologies like engines using advanced knowledge of geometry. This shows how intricate designs and patterns can be used to create futuristic technologies. These designs can move air and water in such a way that it seems to defy the laws of physics and can make things extremely energy efficient. And I think Starforts could have been designed this way to change the earth they were on and pump the water. They could have acted in a similar way to a Tesla valve, allowing the water to flow in one direction and not the other creating a moving channel of water that doesn't need a push from gravity to flow. The Tesla valve works by using a series of interconnected channels or chambers to create a pressure drop in one direction. When fluid flows through the channel in one direction, the pressure drop causes a series of vortices to form, 
which creates resistance to flow in the opposite direction. This resistance prevents backflow and ensures that the fluid can only flow in one direction, through the valve. I wonder if any of these starfort patterns achieve a similar effect to the Tesla valve. If this is the case, then these starforts would have had the ability to control the flow of rivers and move water around the land unlike anything ever done before. Another example of a technology starforts could have incorporated is the Da Vinci miter lock system. The Da Vinci miter lock is a double chamber lock system that uses miter gates, which are hinged gates that close to block water flow. The miter gate have a V-shaped cross-section and meet at a 45-degree angle similar to the way a picture frame miters at the corners. When the miter gates close, their angled surface form a watertight seal that prevents water from flowing between the two chambers. The Da Vinci Canal miter lock was designed to address the issue of water levels in canals, which can vary due to changes in river flow or tides. The lock allows boats to pass through the canals by raising or lowering them from one water level to another. By controlling the flow of water between the two chambers using the miter gates, the lock ensures that the water level on each side of the lock remains constant. Starforts are designed in such a way that hinged gates would be a simple addition to the node points along the star shape. There are many methods of machines used in historical times to pump water uphill as well, and things like these could have been incorporated in at least the construction of these buildings. Windmills were also used by the Dutch to pump water and change landscapes, and like we covered in the last video, the Netherlands has the most starfort cities out of any country. This area also has a history of changes in water levels. The entire English Channel was said to be dry land until around 10,000 years ago. But how did the people who built Starforts know how to do these things? The oldest Starforts are said to be built in the medieval period, and many of the theories around Starforts suggest they could originate from a much older time. But how did these people have knowledge about things that were only later discovered by great minds like Tesla and Da Vinci? While the starforce shape has something to do with cymatics or sacred geometry, we find this type of geometry in art from ancient cultures all across the world, and we can see these shapes incorporated into the architecture as well. We also find these shapes everywhere in nature from things as small as a cell to things as large as galaxies. Our entire world is built using these types of intricate geometric shapes that display the golden ratio in perfect symmetry. You can see them in plants, in gems and minerals, in the way clouds form, in the ripples on a body of water, everything in nature adheres to these designs. So it only makes sense that to be in perfect harmony with nature, one must build in this fashion. You know, guys, it, honestly, I, I just, I'm over here like shaking my head. You know, I, I, I've studied permaculture and like the stuff that they teach in permaculture is so basic. It's so basic. Like we're, we're just relearning these forgotten, uh, you know, skills, these forgotten, you know, sciences, like moving water across a landscape is one of the main things we talk about with permaculture and the fucking starport design in permaculture terms is brilliant. You're, you're maximizing what's called edge. And edge is where the action happens in an ecosystem, right? The same goes for a human ecosystem. If you're designing a city, you want to create maximum edge so you can have maximum surface area to have dwellings and shops and you know storefronts and whatnot. And it's the same thing with nature. It's why it's why these star forts look like snowflakes in their design. 
Y'all catching what I'm pitching here? About when uh, in in the human body, if you look at the uh, the structure of the lungs, like the bronchus and the bronchioles and all the branches of the lung that go down all the way to the to the the very smallest portion of the lung that where oxygen is exchanged, it looks just like a tree. It's the exact same concept where the the trunk branches off into you know the different areas and it look at the looking at the trees in winter just makes me think of lungs and just breathing. I was I was thinking about the valves in our heart when they were talking about those miter gates. You know, and again if you're like if you're just listening, you're not watching the videos that we're sharing here, uh talking to the listener for a second, um you're missing out a bit, but I I see a lot of biological um corollaries with these geometric designs right the how 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 blood is pumped through the heart is very similar to these miter gates that could have uh controlled you know water levels within one of these star forts and one of the major valves in the heart is called the mitral valve Mm. yeah weren't we sort of talking about this last week where you know it's sort of fractals I'm sure we were <laughs> having deja yeah, vu. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's sort of like the microcosms and macrocosms and looking things, you know, from out of space, if that's true, not fake and gay. Um, rivers and things like that, just like our cardiovascular system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's, um, it's just natural engineering. I mean, over – Yeah. it's an intelligence. There's no doubt about that. There's an intelligent engineering in there. Um well, I, you know, with, with the risk of sounding stoned or whatever, um, like the intelligence of design itself, the intelligence of matter and energy to me is like, I'm, I'm, you know, call it whatever you want. I'm going to call it God because it's pretty miraculous. Yeah. And isn't it amazing how it keeps going? How come we never lose momentum? You know, like things that we sort of, We've got to keep re-energizing things, rebooting, recharging. But life never seems to run out of momentum. Mm-hmm. There's always this energy that keeps it going. What's that? That's God, I guess. It's the best word I've come up with. Yeah. There's so many different parts yeah. of my life that kind of resonate with this. Um, yeah. Because, yeah. okay, so... One of the early videos you showed was um, of those massive white oak trees. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you something. I have milled a lot of white oak in my day because I used to work for a custom woodworker. And we did these amazingly beautiful doorways and stuff that do that use um, sacred geometry. And he also was someone who gave classes like on sacred geometry and how to use it. And it's amazing how simple some of it is just using yeah. like a compass. Yeah. I I've decided I want to try to get more creative with my garden designs. You know, the fact that I build raised bed gardens means that I get to work with different angles and I've tended to only work with right angles, but I'm yeah I'm getting a little sick and tired of the old 90 degrees. Let's get right. a little, find, let's you get won't weird. Find right angles in nature not nope. perfect you will never find a perfect right angle mm-hmm. well i shouldn't say never but 99.999 percent right. safe and effective you won't 
Well, you know, the one plant, the one plant that might give you pause, or rather the one family, is mint. They have a square, more or less square stem, which is pretty wild. Oh, yeah, yeah. But you're right. It is exceedingly rare. Um, Angles in general are kind of rare, but I, well, I guess that's not true. There's angles to everything. (laughs) Well, probably the the most right angled things you'll find is usually things that have been broken off, like in an earthquake or um, something like there's There's so many arguments about some of the things that have been found underwater on the ocean floor of Mm. whether, um, like everywhere all around the world, um, whether, you know, that's natural or whether it was man-made because it looks, a lot of things look like steps and things like that. So... We got a good comment. We got a good comment from our good friend Ando. He says he only works with wrong angles. Fuck a a right angle. (laughs) At least it's not a left angle. All right. Should we carry? Should we carry on here? Two angles of one bird. (laughs) Yeah, let's proceed. Many ancient cities pride themselves on being built in accordance with nature and keeping with the natural frequencies of the land. The earth has a resonant frequency. And each region of the earth emanates its own specific variation of this vibration. Nikola Tesla knew this, and his Wardenclyffe Tower was said to tune into this exact frequency and provide free energy to the surrounding people. Tuning to this resonant frequency is said to have more applications than just wireless energy. It's also said to be able to heal the body and maybe why certain spots on earth are thought to have sacred healing powers. We know that water can hold vibration and water is a large part of many of these healing sites. Maybe there was something about the shapes of Star Force that tapped into this frequency and purified the water to make it safe for drinking, even giving it healing properties. Water molecules can be influenced by frequencies and electromagnetic energy, so it's entirely possible to clean water with the right frequencies. If this is the case, then these buildings were truly built in perfect harmony with nature, providing people with modern amenities and possibly even keeping them from disease. Many have pointed out how weird it is that many of these medieval cities were built without sewage systems. Maybe they would just dump their waste into the Star 4 water channels, and the pumping system would not only wash the waste away, but would actually instantly purify the water and make it safe for drinking, using the frequencies of the earth and the architecture itself. You may think this is a little far-fetched, but there are other ancient sites that incorporate sound technology into their construction. One being Chichen Itza, and other Mesoamerican pyramids. How they reflect a terrifying chirping sound back at you when you clap in front of them. The pyramids at Giza are also said to amplify certain frequencies and sound waves. Stonehenge was also said to have acoustic properties, and many others as well. There's also the story in the Bible of the Israelites taking down the walls of Jericho, using nothing but sound waves from their horns and marching. God told them specifically when and how long to march around the city, and some theorize that there was something about the way the Israelites marched and the frequencies at which they blew their horns that caused the great walls of Jericho to crumble. These original walls have been lost to history, the ones we see today in Israel were a later construction, so maybe these walls were a star fort themselves. Or maybe star fort technology was created as a way to combat the sound frequency warfare. I have a video that delves into this a little bit about King Solomon and how the temple, as well as the Jerusalem city walls, look Tartarian in origin. It's titled Solomon, the first king of Tartaria. I'll link that below. Any comments? I, I thought that notion of... Uh this this geometry being used to repel sonic weapons 
I think that's an interesting notion. Very interesting because, yeah, you can see those wells would certainly trap certain frequencies and they'd sort of be bouncing around everywhere and cancelling yeah. each other out, the, I would assume. Deflection. Hmm. As well. Hmm. They certainly had a much more of an understanding about how to utilise these things, for sure. I could see in terms of physics, like a big flat wall would be a lot easier to bring down than something with a lot of angles and a lot of, uh, yeah, yeah, points of, of deflection, you know? Yeah, modern construction is very vulnerable as far as mm. um, being able to penetrate it. But yeah. also, um, this is this is interesting, like, I don't know, I, I know a little bit about acoustics, and this is not like most of the acoustic stuff that you see these days. Mm. Most mm. of it's more like the, um, the domes. Um, there are well, traps, think, base traps. Maybe those corners are like base traps and stuff. But like, I'm just thinking from a from a music studio point of view, it's it's very different. And um, well, but think about the um, the foam that's on the walls. Oh yeah, that like eggshell, right? What is that? You mean that's to absorb? <laughs> that's to absorb the sound. Yes. Yeah. to absorb the reflection no ricochet mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i don't know if any of you have ever been in an, an anechoic an, anechoic chamber um i haven't myself but my ex was a sound engineer and he said <laughs> he said it was hilarious because there was two of them in there wiring this anechoic chamber up and there was a cricket in there and they could not find it anywhere because <laughs> there was just no way of you couldn't look it. wow wow <laughs> That's that's really interesting. You know, yeah. so I, I mean, I'm halfway imagining just like in my own mind, this this story of the walls of Jericho and the Israelites, you know, bringing it down by marching around it and blaring their horns. Yeah. You know, if you if you could achieve a resonance where, <clears throat> you know, you're blowing the sound at the walls and the, the sound is reflecting back at you and you're hitting this harmonic resonance how you could build that energy yeah right and it's the same I, as the opera singer in the totally, wine glass yeah it's not totally far-fetched that's my point it's totally it's kinda, doable it's like totally feasible you know and it does halfway maybe explain these star ports it's like man like if you were going to build something impenetrable to a wall of sound this is exactly what you'd do you know, I, it makes total sense. Yep. And, um, you know, people, well, people, creatures like the Tavistock Institute know all this as well. They know how to manipulate people through frequencies, etc. Um, Therefore, that's why a lot of the engineered music as much as, you know, that's a hard one. It's a bit of a pill to swallow because, you know, I love a lot of that music. But if you want to really break it down, the frequencies are probably not doing this. you really that much good at cellular level on some of the music and it's been designed that way <clears throat> and that's where you start getting into that 432 versus 440 argument you know whether that's been it was shifted at some point mm. because it is so anti-harmony for the on a molecular level that's another <laughs> show probably but um makes me makes me want to invest in more vinyl you know well it's not even it's not the medium 
it's really I, I was just thinking like digital sound versus analog in general no but... i'm talking i'm talking the actual frequencies and even down to the bpms the beats per minute i mean that's you know mm. that's a cycle that's creating a cycle um so you know maybe there's some mass like you know frequency divided by bpm equals something i have no idea but somehow they've sorted it out <laughs> they know mm. all this stuff and they use it yeah, you know, I'm not saying that everyone should go and burn their Black Sabbath albums, like you know, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but you know, just something to be aware of. Well, I um, guess I guess my fear, are. my fear would almost be that any um, any music I listen to from the internet could be not the original as far as the artist wanted, right? In terms of the uh, the exact file that finds its way through the internet to my device into my ears versus like when you buy a printed LP, like you're pretty well certain it's at least what the artist recorded, right? Mm, I, I bought a brand new vinyl that was shitty. Really? Sometimes the vinyl stamping wears out. Yeah. Mm. And it's shitty. Mm. Yeah. And you've got to make sure that your drive belt is still working properly and, you know, still the right size and all that sort of thing. So, there but are it, variables and, you know, things get remastered as well. Like the digital stuff gets remastered. So you don't know what really goes on there. But um, it, it, it harkens back to the issue of like the Smithsonian, right? And like the, you know, how do you know the information is the original? How do you know they haven't sequestered certain shit? You have to go it? back. You have to yeah. go back a long, long way and try to find the information that was available before the Smithsonian, etc. I suppose, and just you know, which is another. I hate to hark on about this guy, but Jason from Archaics is that's what he's doing. That's exactly mm. what he's doing. Mm. He's going back and reading. I mean, he was in jail for I don't know some incredible amount of years, thirty something years, and that's all he did was just read these really old books that he found in old libraries and things. And he was put in charge of old jail libraries, etc. Anyway, I don't want to mm. hark on about him, but the knowledge that's coming out is incredible. <laughs> It's nothing, well, no other way of saying it. Funny thing about a jail library is they get all the rejects. Yeah. And the really and that, old stuff, hmm, like old yeah. books, as they get new donations and things like that, they'll mm -hmm. just take old books off the shelf and they'll shove them in boxes and, you know, in some storage area or whatever. And then every few years they'll go through it, whatever. So that was part of what he was doing as well. So that's pretty interesting. Wow. Mm. Well, uh, Fido, anything to say or? Or bear. I was just gonna say that speaking of acoustics, um, when the when I have my front door and my back door open in my house, and the wind blows just at a certain speed, my house starts making this woo sound. It goes woo, <laughs> and it sounds like someone's standing there going woo. You know, it's it's really it's yeah, really fun. Yeah. It makes me laugh every single time. And so I try to keep my front and back door open as much as possible. So I, if the wind does come through, it'll, <laughs> it'll make that sound. Cause it's, it's, it's hilarious. Like blowing, it's time. like blowing across the top of the bottle, right? Yeah. It's, it's like, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or, or when you're driving in the car and you got your windows cracked and you get yeah. that, re that resonance inside the car and it, your eardrums want to pop. You it know? sounds like somebody mimicking a, the sound a ghost would make. <laughs> I remember, I remember the house because um, I built a house with my partner down in Tassie and before it, before we had our internal walls put in, that was in a very, like it was a very windy place. 
the wind on the west coast is incredible. We were on the east, so but it still used to, you know, it used to get up to many, many, many kilometres an hour, and it would be blowing through different holes that we had, like at the sizeelation. It was like an orchestra almost. There's all these different notes <laughs> coming from different, and the sizeelation would be. Brrr. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I can relate to what you're saying there. <laughs> There's well, um. There's a state that has the number one suicide rate apparently because of yeah. the wind. I think it's Montana, but I'm not Kansas. positive. Kansas. Is it Kansas? Yes. And it's just because of that whistling wind that just yeah, drives people crazy. Drives people you get crazy. Wow. It's just a bunch of people in Kansas with guilty consciences. That's what it is. <laughs> uh, maybe. No, but I think there is something to that. You know, like people go crazy. And it actually, it begs, begs the question of like, you know, again, just hypothesizing with the star forts, um, they could have been built to withstand high winds, earthquakes. I mean, who knows, who knows what the, uh, what the purpose was, but the design is a sound, you know, structurally sound design, you know, the angles add stability. This is basic kind of, uh, you know, building, right? But I don't know. I, I find it fascinating. I, I had heard about star forts, but I'd never really looked into it. Uh, we're getting to the end of this video, so let me play you the last few minutes here, and uh, and we'll take it from there. No matter which way you slice it, the people that built star forts had to have knowledge of cymatics and sound frequencies just to simply design these types of shapes. Some of these star forts are so intricate, it couldn't have been a coincidence that they were built to match the shapes sound frequencies create. Now, we've talked about advanced technologies that star forts could have been using, but none of these technologies used electricity. If the people who built star forts were so advanced, then did they have electricity? Well, many say they did. The proof of this lies in the design of their architecture and the material they used. We talked a little bit about cathedrals and the conductive antenna they always have on the top of them. But how could these have created electricity? I'm no expert in this subject, but the theory goes that they work just like Tesla's Wardenclyffe Tower. And they're essentially just stylized versions of this. The tower was designed as a large vertical structure, consisting of a cylindrical base and a domed top. At the center of the tower was a large coil of wire, which was connected to a powerful oscillator capable of generating high-frequency electrical currents. Tesla's plan was to use the tower to transmit electrical energy wirelessly, by sending electrical signals through the Earth's atmosphere. The tower was designed to generate extremely high voltages and frequencies, which Tesla believed would create resonant standing waves in the Earth's atmosphere, allowing energy to be transmitted wirelessly across great distances. This tower required no external power source and would work by tapping into the Earth's resonant frequency. Cathedrals and other ancient temples, and like we said before, pyramids as well, all the same components of the Tesla coil tower. They reach high into the atmosphere and gather energy from the Earth itself, and they store the energy in the structures themselves. They say this is why old buildings were built with so many spires and used copper or metal roofs. Some researchers say they have also shown that certain materials like red bricks that have a high iron content or rocks like granite with high quartz content can actually hold a charge. Many of these structures also incorporate water in them, like we see with holy water in cathedrals, and many temples have sacred fountains and pools. And all these old star forts incorporated a cathedral in the center. Could they have really been a haven-like city with free energy and clean, pure water? The less extreme version of this theory is that they were not cultivating electrical energy, but spiritual energy. And we can actually see cultures that still do this in their temples today, 
like in the Far East Asia and Indian temples, for example. Their buildings often have these same components to them that the cathedrals and Tesla coils do, but they are simply using them to gather the etheric energy that they call chi in China, or prana in India, or mana in the Pacific. And many other cultures recognize this energy in their own way as well. The star forts and cathedrals were built in such a way, they could have been created as a way to better reach God and possibly allow for some kind of communication. Just like we see in ancient Israel on Temple Mount, which is also a star fort, and the Holy of Holies in the back of the temple, where the Ark of the Covenant sat. Alright, that's all I have for you on part three, part four. I have a thought. Go the ahead. Whole, the whole uh, tower conducting spiritual energy was uh, actually the basis for the Ghostbusters movie. <laughs> Remember yeah. the big building that was supposed to channel energy? There is no Dana, only Zool. <laughs> right, right. That was, that was the basis of the Ghostbusters movie. <laughs> I just thought it was funny that they that that has actually found its way into Hollywood. And of course, they, you know, they they satirized it. But I think there's something to it. I really do. I believe it. I had another thought, which um, was some of these towers seem like with the towers to reach God, um, the Tower of Baal, Tower to reach heaven to become god um right i think a lot of cathedrals might be um a little bit like that in some ways but um i don't know i'm not i'm not like passing judgment i'm pretty christian myself and everything but i'm just uh i don't know i'm just thinking and spitballing i tend to think like like with everything else i'm like why would they put all that energy and effort into building something that you know was not functional like i think it had a function and i well, i and tend to lean it reached a point where they were having like cathedral um competitions and stuff to build the biggest mm. best cathedral and they started becoming non-functional started collapsing on themselves and that kind of thing mm. they probably they lost it they got um uh, too big too big for their britches yeah, yeah, they got in too <laughs> yeah. indulgent with it. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could see that. Too um, prideful, all that. Yeah. That's all well, I got. Yeah. Anybody else? No, that's all I got. You know, it's too bad. I seem to have like a busted link. Um, I had, I had a link I wanted to share between, you know this one and that one but i guess we're just gonna have to skip the the middle portion here and carry on um but let me show you a little more about tesla okay and where where he got his inspiration when nikola tesla was in his late 80s very old and he was given a big awards dinner in New York where the world was thanking him for all the incredible things that he had given to the world. And he said, Nikola Tesla spoke to the audience, and he said, I have to tell you how I got my ideas to do what I've done. He said, every evening before bed... Your brain as a human has nothing to do with your 
creativity with your ideas and your understanding of things. The brain is designed to do only one thing and one thing only. It is to control the mechanisms of your body. It controls the electrical impulses that go to your your muscles so that you can walk, run, so you can climb. It controls your body's muscles. It controls the movement of the human body. It controls the blinking of the eye, the swallowing of water. It controls everything in your body. It's nothing more than a controlling mechanism for your human body. But when it comes to your imagination, your creativity, the ideas and concepts that come out of you, we have, as scientists, no idea in the world where your spiritual perceptions come from, where your thoughts come from. We have no idea at all. All that we know is has nothing to do with your brain. Your brain does not give you inspiration. It merely takes care of your body. And so, therefore, where do your thoughts come from? When the great composers were composing the beautiful music, where do those ideas for the for the music come from? When you get people who are writing profoundly important books, where and we say they were truly inspired, where we know it wasn't in their mind, it came from outside of their brain. So it implies that our inspiration is being. We are being overshadowed, is the term that I use. Overshadowed by some kind of a higher intelligence in the universe. Something out there is feeding us information, and it's called inspiration. We are being inspired, and some people are just naturally pick up on inspiration from out there, wherever it comes from. And they can create beautiful music, beautiful art. They can design rockets. They can design lasers, <laughs> televisions, all kinds of strange and wonderful imaginations in the human mind. But it does not come from your brain. It comes from out there. And so, when you listen to the composers of music,、uh, you can tell they were inspired. They didn't just read it out of a book. If you understand what they were doing, they're not just picking sounds that sound nice. No, it was mathematical. It was very deep understanding of the of the creation of the universe, the breathing in and the breathing out of the universe. It had to do with an occult, heavy duty science. The breathing in and the breathing out, the divine breath. The Aloha and the Alaho. I mean, guys, are you seeing what I'm getting at here? I well, sure hope did, you are. What did they try to do? Hey, they put a mask over us. Oh my goodness! Didn't they do? Golly. Also, in、um, in Hebrew, the word for God is、um, YHWH because Hebrew doesn't have vowels. And so they, the consensus is that the Y H W H makes the sound Yahweh, and Yahweh. I was just is, thinking about Yahweh. Oh my! Yahweh、yeah. is the word for God, which is also the word for breath.、Mm. Amen. 
the also yeah, I, I saw a video um as several years ago actually it was a it was a time lapse um video of the earth seen from space and it was a uh, time lapse over the years watching the weather patterns and uh and the uh and the movement of the earth through space and i think it was over the course of probably 10 or 15 years and it was sped up so that you could see how the polar ice caps um, accumulate ice and then the ice melts and if you look at it in 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 and when it's going through its motion non-stop the time lapse it actually looks like the earth is breathing where yeah. the where ice caps accumulate of and then it recedes, accumulates and recedes and it looks like breathing yeah it's all cyclic. I mean, nothing is stationary. Nothing stays the same and still mm -hmm. in that's organic or living. Oh, it's a living, breathing organism. The earth is a living, breathing organism. It's just like a cell of the universe. Climate change is real. It's just not what they're telling you. Exactly. exactly. Climate change is completely natural. And um, the impact that well, I have heard a few breakdowns of fractions and percentages, et cetera, from people or sources that actually like not them, <laughs> people who are counteracting and trying to bring some actual mathematics that are proven to the table rather than just the stats they throw around at us. Um, and, yeah, it's all just a it's a living, breathing mechanism, a cycle, and the little impact that we've actually had is just it's tiny. It's nothing like what the, the big blowing out thing they're making out is. It's tiny and we yeah. cannot get rid of carbon. If we get rid of carbon, we're screwed. So is all the plant life, so is all the animals and everything like that. If we even reduce it yeah, by a bit. absolutely. And you've seen the experts, I don't know, you've probably seen them being asked about, you know, well, what? tell us what the percentage is, you know, in, of carbon in the atmosphere. None of them have a freaking clue. They're just going blah, blah, the rhetoric and it's it, none of the science is based on anything. So we all know that I would, I would venture to argue and I, you know, I'm just talking out of my ass here, but I think that our karmic spiritual, whatever you want to call it, our personal resonance probably has a greater impact on the climate quote unquote, than our supposed carbon footprint, you know, the, the, the energy that you emanate probably has more resonant value than your your automobile or your you know energy bill i would i would dare to say that there tends to be a harmony between those two um the Maybe resonance so. yeah. the resonance of humanity is going to correlate with how good it is from mother mother earth or mother nature you know um it's going to be like, are we in tune or are we not kind of thing? Yeah. So that's the collective energy. I won't say argument yeah. because that's very disharmonious. <laughs> collective energy chat, um, which, you know, if you want to do the going to the other extreme of the matrix, you know, with all the batteries and, you know, they're feeding off our energy. And I mean, this is an ongoing theme, isn't it? Even in, I don't know, some cultures and things, I suppose, but lately there's a lot of talk about hang on is there something that's collectively feeding of us which is why they have to cr keep producing the fear and all the stuff the fear porn and making putting people into this state of low frequency mm. um it does make sense i mean well, sound and, has an effect 
the whole creation was made from a word, you know, let's go back to Genesis, but that's what I'm saying. But also, also this, um, this apparent need for some level of spiritual consent, like they have to show you the hand that they're playing. Yes. Right. They have to seemingly so, silence. Seemingly. You, have to, you have to agree before you can submit. Yep. Exactly. But sometimes that's just by not doing anything or not disagreeing, because that is also plays well, into it. Going going back to our our guy Robert Owen from New Harmony, Indiana, who uh, simply made a more pleasant, you know, uh, plantation for his workers. It's like, yeah, not good enough, man. That that doesn't cut it. You're still you're still. Um, I mean, yeah, you're 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 manufacturing consent. We see that over and over. Um, by deception or by, or by convenience, you know, that's what that was. It was convenient. It was better to work for that master than that one. Cause at least that master pays me a little better. And he, uh, you know, puts my kid in some type of school, you know, huh. I find it very hard to, uh, differentiate between co consent and coercion for myself. Um, I'm I'm gonna be starting to file my taxes soon this year, you know? And that is a very coerced um I like to say non consensual thing, but um yeah. Yeah, it's debatable. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. Yeah. You know? Well, I've heard of people who um <laughs> abstain. Abstain. I am not one of those people quite yet, but I can respect it. It just, you know, you are, it, you consent. It, it almost seems like, uh, yeah. If you, if you really fucking think about it, income tax is consensual. It's, uh, voluntary. I mean, you've just been convinced that I, it's not, I kind of feel like there's a gun to my head. I kind of do too. <laughs> they say that it is, it is consensual, that it is something you can volunteer to do. However, Mm -hmm. You will not find an employer that is going to not take taxes out. Any right. any uh, like mainstream employer like Walmart or Home Depot or some other corporate entity that you work for. Uh, hell, even the doctor's office that I work for, it's a private practice. They they can't with they can't not withhold taxes from your check because it is actually illegal for them to not take out taxes so it's not exactly a voluntary kind of thing even though they like oh you don't have to pay your taxes actually no you kind of do if you're gonna be making money working for yeah. a hospital or a, any fast food restaurant they have they legally they're legally obligated to take that out well even even the and company they're gonna I take it out for. whether you want them to or not and, and it's just a matter of how much you're gonna let them take out yeah, yeah, I work for a small like independent company, but they're pretty much obligated to do it too. I would have to make them there there might be a way that I could like <laughs> the only way get them the only to way jump through the loopholes for me and everything, but like they they don't want to do it. The only way you would be able to do it is if you signed a contract with them and uh became a contract worker, like a self-employed thing where you're providing a service to them. And yeah, they like won't a, a 1099 basically, contract. yeah, and then basically leave it to you to deal with the taxes. But there's a lot of employers that are not going to go through because it's a lot of paperwork to do that. Again, again, implicit consent. That's what Droid Tab 
put in the comments. It's implied consent. It implied there, consent. there is a way around it, but it's very inconvenient. And uh, it's that way on purpose. It's that way yeah. on purpose. Yeah, you've exactly. got to be prepared to have your day ruined pretty much on a daily basis at any mm -hmm. time. And it's like then you've got this whole looking over your shoulder syndrome. What a what a pain. So great great choice. Sounds like yeah. having my adrenaline spiked all the time. Yeah. I well, you know, I've got one word and that's agorism. And uh once again, not advice, particularly not financial or legal advice. But if it were me, hypothetically, I would have I like that know, banner. I <laughs> grow food, grow food. That's right. Grow but if food, it were me. Food. I would uh I would have my on paper income and my off paper income. You know, just yeah, hypothetically. Not that I would Yeah, well, use, you know, yeah. hypothetically that's a yeah. very good thing to do. And I would go along with that. <laughs> I'm yeah. you know, I'm just trying to dodge things at the moment. Um AI is listening, so you know, got to be careful, but uh mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a little path that I'm trying to uh, avoid, put it that way. There's no there's no loss to the country or anything. It's like I'm kind of almost like, well, let's see what happens. Hey, <laughs> I, hey. I, I am pretty sure that they I, – I should check this before I say it, but I, I have this inkling that I've heard somewhere that they can actually just reach into your account and grab whatever it is that you owe um, over here. I'm not sure. I should check they, that. They, they can certain. or they can't. Can can C A N can. can. Okay, okay. Um, but well, I will they check certainly, that. I will check that. They certainly can in Canada. Can can Canada. <laughs> Canada. They got. They I got. Would they, say they, can. they got a can-do can attitude. Can do. <laughs> and it's whether they have the guts to do it or not. Right. Right. Whether they have the guts. Yep. Oh, gonna... some of the things the banks have done to people. I have no exactly. doubt. Exactly. Exactly. The they they want all of it. Yeah. If you uh, if you had a gamble where you knew that you could make money, and I'm talking about fiat currency here to just kind of give it away, but like if you knew that it was just going to inflate, then how much money do you want? Or like how much how much do you want to short it? Right. Like how much do you want to invest that it's going to inflate? And if you have that endless supply, how much of it do you want? Do you want all of it? Right. Well, here's the thing that really gets me is that. The number of people that pay taxes, it's just the it's the general public, the 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 not the the corporations that are running this country. They're not paying taxes. Uh, Bill Gates is not paying taxes. Donald Trump is not paying taxes. It's all the rest of us, us poor people, us peons down here who have fallen for the, the lies of the rat race and, you know, working 40 hours a week and the pay, just having a job just to pay our bills. Yeah, we We're are. the only ones paying taxes. And when you think about it, what the government actually spends money on, they sent how much money to Ukraine? Where did that money come <laughs> from? We don't have that money. I mean, even if they were just printing oh, it's money, your, even if it's just your, coming up. Vito, it's your, it's, your, it's your grandchildren's money. Let's be clear. It's your, <laughs> yeah. it's your it's great like, grandchildren's money. money. hasn't even been made yet that oh, yeah. they're just saying, oh, well, we're going to just send this money over there. And, yeah, and I, but it's, I think it's just 
It's just a magnified version of the fractional reserve banking system, though, isn't it? I mean, it's just a huge version of that. It's just like another fractal. It's, you know, it's just all money that doesn't really exist and it's all based on this hypothetical unicorn fart, you know, suggestion theory. But if any of us decided, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to buy a whole new living room set, a whole new bedroom set and some appliances, and they're like, how are you going to pay for it? You don't have any money. And it's like, I'm just going to buy it. Well, with what? It's like, how are they even sending money that doesn't even exist? That doesn't even make sense to me. It, it doesn't have to make sense. You, <laughs> and I okay. guess that's the, that's, there we are. There it is. Don't I'll, I'll make go, sense of it. I'll Don't go try. back. I'll go Keep back to sanity. the very, I'll go back to the very beginning where I shared a short snippet from Dr. Strangelove. Okay. I, I shared that for a purpose. And that song that refers to, you know, poor folks trying to blow the whistle, never saw the cowboy riding on the missile. Okay. The cowboy on the missile doesn't need to make sense. It just is. Okay. The the premise of the entire movie, if you have not watched Dr. Strangelove, the premise is that our entire world is in the is in is grasped in, in the loosely gripped hands of some highly incompetent motherfuckers who could blow us up at any moment. And even if they don't mean to, they might do it. And it's a sad kind of statement, but it's semi-true. You can't make no sense of it. They seem just to be doing I, their best. I, I, but I, I, the really I terrifying want, thing yeah. is, the really terrifying thing is, I honestly do not believe that they are that incompetent. They are doing this yeah. shit on purpose. It's I'm not just convinced. like when, just like when Biden did all that that military pullout in Afghanistan, and they're like, "Oh, well, he didn't mean for it to go that way." I was like, "No, he may not have, but the people who advised him to do it do that." intended it for to go that way like there's no way these people are that incompetent i refuse to believe that yeah look i really need i feel the need to say i need to remind everyone that the mind is the battlefield that's the final frontier and that's the holy grail of both sides they need to block us off no matter what it takes whether it's a mask whether it's plane farts in the sky whether it's energy from towers, whatever it may be, they're trying to block us off from being in harmony with the creator Mm. and claiming our God-given right to be human and not touched and our stuff not touched. It's as simple as that natural law. The fact that we're in the system and in a cage, we can't escape it. We can't fully. But it's the mind that we need to escape with. So we need to sort of stop falling for the thing of trying to make sense of all these things, trying to put it all together to make a sensible building because it's just like, you know, it's just like you get to that point, it's like the Lego where there's like those bits missing. So you just can't find them. You can't finish it properly. So I, yeah, I want to, I want to say, um, like, I don't think we should stop trying to make sense. I, 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 I joke that you can't make sense of it, but I think we should still try. And okay, I, I yeah, say, I probably worded that badly. Not no, 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 it's okay. I'm just trying to. to but yeah, this is remember this that just... it's not going to. It's not going to make sense because it's not meant to. Because that is the whole point of the psyop. 
Well, it's insane. So my point, I'm going to, I'm going to tie it back to last week. We were talking about, uh, Colonel Grites, Colonel Grits, you know, another helping of grits. I liked that little, uh, (laughs) joke, but anywho, he, he talked about how the problem with like the FBI and the ATF and the reason we end up with Ruby Ridge and Waco and all of these kind of things is because they don't have an enemy. They've been trained to have an enemy, but they don't have one. So they invent an enemy. And that's why I find I find that line from the uh, Harry Backrack song so, so important. The poor folks trying to blow the whistle never saw the cowboy riding on the missile. When you watch Dr. Strangelove, this character of the cowboy pilot, he is he is the guy who has been trained to follow orders no matter what. And even though they try to like abort the mission and, and recall the plane, he's so my, you know, through a series of events, there's no way he's going back. He's, you know, they barely have enough fuel to finish the mission, but by God, he's going to fucking drop that bomb on the goddamn target. Cause that's what he was goddamn trained to do. So I, I find that line so fucking true where, we're trying to blow the whistle, but that, you know, we got to remember there's that, that fucking lunatic cowboy that's been trained for nothing other than destruction. And he is not going to be satisfied till he has it. And it's a sad thing, but that's, that's to me, the nature of bureaucracy and the nature of government. You create a need, you create a job and somebody's going to fucking do it. Even if it's not a good thing. Yeah, you tell yourself it's to create more jobs or to support people or whatever, you know, and really it's it's leading to a lot more uh, devastation than you're willing to consider. Yeah, that's interesting. Basically, 51.5% of people don't pay their income taxes, according to Droid Tab there. Mm. That's because they've got it figured out, I guess, or... They're not just being stubborn. I'm not sure. What what's the are reasoning they, there? Yeah, are they filing? On? Are they filing their income tax? They just don't owe anything. Yeah. Are they doing it like in Ireland or Switzerland or somewhere where you don't have to I'd be more curious to find out how many people don't even bother to file as opposed to don't end up paying, you know, because there's right. lots of ways to get out of paying. Is that, that worldwide? That 51.5% are probably the people that actually have the means to not pay income tax. Yeah. Most of us don't have the means to not pay income tax. Is that people or companies? That's another thing. Like, is that yeah. individual people? According to the that... government, corporations are people. Oh, of course. Right. <laughs> yes, you're right. 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 Those, those people with their capital letters in black ink. Mm. <laughs> those strange creatures that they've, those avatars that they gave us. Legal avatars. Well, um, I'm inclined to encourage us to push on here. Uh, I don't have a whole lot more, but we're we're kind of getting to it. Go ahead. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know. It's all it's all the same. It's all energy and magnetism and sound and light. Yes, I question some of, 
and I'm, you know, probably. Anyway, I question some of the solar polar thing, the solar shifty thing. I'm sure there is cycles going on, but I think that it's not as, it's not going to be as full on as they're making it out as in the effect with us because we've all been through a few shifts like that. But um, I think that they're going to use it to blame it for, um, you know, outages and things, whether it's going to be lots of separate ones, I'm not sure, or one great big huge globally type outage thing. But there's this thing called the False Carrington event that's been spoken of. Um, Thought that they were may just going to blame the magas. <laughs> yeah. It's all so I, <laughs> I think I, I think I screwed up there. I thought I had played the thing, but then I didn't play the thing. Um, was there like an awkward long pause? Were you having a oh, Biden we moment? We weren't hearing yeah. anything, so we were just talking. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely. I thought I had played something, and I didn't. So. Didn't um, push the button. I I pushed the wrong button. Okay. Here <laughs> we go. Be a Biden moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least it didn't blow up the whole goddamn. Did, did I blow up the thing? <laughs> yeah. All right. Here we go. Still being used by the broadcast companies today. You know, that's it's it's encoded in their logos. It's everywhere around us, but we're just too blind to see it. Sound as a tool and technology, very important. Sound creates light. Even this, you add a, a put a attach a LED light to a speaker, and you put a speaker in a noisy place. You light the little LED up. That's spectacular. So it works both ways, light and sound. Every sound frequency has a light frequency, and every light, every light frequency has a sound frequency attached to it. Corey Good, in a recent interview, said that he was in some giant underground cavern somewhere, and there was this invisible source of light. And when he asked, where does the light come from? He was told, the light was coming from the sound. The light was being created by the sound. Uh, in Egypt, the Ankh was used for healing. That's just a resonating device, sound frequency resonating for healing. The Native American medicine wheel is clearly just a cross in a circle as a source of all things, so from sound to heal people. Royal Rife, the man who cured all disease in 1931, they did that with sound and resonance and frequency, spectacular uh, achievement in curing cancer in the wards. Um, this is his handwritten book that I had the privilege of seeing. It's in a, in a, in a private library in Sedona, Arizona. There's about 700 pages in there, I think. And they are page after page with his own handwritten frequencies for all the different diseases. One of my biggest, most exciting obsessions at the moment, and if there are people in this room that can do this, please go away and do this. You know that honey lasts forever. It doesn't go off. It's not affected by viruses, bacteria, pathogens. It's, it's, it's one of those miraculous things. Apparently, the reason that honey does that is because of the frequencies of the bees' wings when they're building the honeycombs and when they're creating and bringing in the honey. So it's the frequency of the bees' wings that creates the hexagonal structure of honeycombs. It's also interesting is that the hexagonal structure is a structure of, of, of oxygenated and structured water that cures disease. This is really important. If any one of you can go and record the frequency of bees in a beehive, the buzzing of the bees' wings, and you take that frequency to a lab, a biochemistry lab, and you expose a petri dish of viruses, bacteria, and fungus to the frequency of the bees' wings, I suspect that that frequency will kill the bacteria. George Lakovsky's multiple wave oscillator um, is a spectacular device with which he cured his father, listen carefully, 
He cured his father of quadriplegia. You don't cure people of quadriplegia, right? His father was admitted with quadriplegia into the hospital in the USA. Six weeks later, he walked out on crutches. The way he treated him is every day he walked in there with a little small handheld portable multiple wave oscillator from George Lakovsky and treated him for about 45 minutes up and down his spine, after which he exposed him to color light therapy for another hour. He did this for four weeks, six weeks. His father walked out on crutches. I saw the hospital report. It says, Mr. So-and-so exhibited a remarkable recovery. That's it. It's spectacular. They just won't go there. <laughs> they will not be you know, engaged in any explanation. In 2011, Anthony Holland, this is now in a TED Talk, show us which frequencies kill cancer cells. Very briefly, okay, he tells us between 100,000 hertz and 300,000 hertz kills cancer cells. And he shows us in the TED Talk. We now know that cancer is vulnerable between the frequencies of 100,000 hertz and 300,000 hertz. So now we attack leukemia cells. Leukemia cell number one tries to grow a copy of itself, but the new cell is shattered into dozens of fragments and scattered across the slide. Leukemia cell number two then hyperinflates and also dies. Leukemia cell number three then tries to make another cancer cell. The new cell is shattered and the original cell dies. Magnetrons obviously generate huge amounts of energy and that's just sound. It's a resonant cavity magnetron. Resonant cavity magnetron that's used in laser beams, laser technology, microwaves, all use magnetrons for that technology. Sound acts as a close cloak of invisibility. Uh, this, there's so much new information about this. Uh, you know, this opens a whole new chapter in debate. There's very advanced new sound cloaking technology right now available. Uh, this plastic 3D acoustic pyramid acts as a as an acoustic cloak, makes things make things invisible when you put it underneath it, when you expose that pyramid to specific sound frequencies, and that pyramid is reminiscent of what? is reminiscent very strongly of Eastern architecture. Sound creates hurricanes. In 2003, these guys lodged a patent to create hurricanes with sound. And then here's another one. Sound creates supercluster galaxies. When I said earlier, the lower the frequency, the larger the cymatic shape. Now you've got a frequency that's 57 octaves lower than middle C rumbling away from a supermassive black hole in the Perseus cluster in the key of B-flat, creating a supercluster galaxy. And it's amazing. This is it. A... Isn't this, isn't this crazy? Isn't this shit crazy? <laughs> it's amazing. Oh my God. And I was just thinking, I was just thinking, oh, won't our flat earth friends just be happy about that? It's in the frequency of B-flat, B -flat. man. <laughs> 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 see, see. <laughs> no, this is amazing. Love this stuff. In this wild, and I would let me love just to see you. a study. I I would love to see a study on cancer patients where they actually do that that uh, 
frequency treatment on cancer patients. I would love to see something like that done. There is Fido, stuff like Fido. that. You can't, is... you can't make any money off of sound. Don't you know? Oh, I'm sure they're working on that. Give them, give them chemo and radiation. We, we don't, we don't want sound. Sorry. That's yeah, there is stuff that you can find actually, which um, has sort of generally it's wiped off YouTube, but there you can find it. I will try to let me just make a note. I'll try to remember to find this dude that I'm speaking about. I think he had to go to Mexico or something. Um, anyway, I th yeah, he, he's dead now. <laughs> Surprised. Um, but he had, yeah, all sorts of cancer cures, one of many, one of many. And currently, actually, there's a, well, there's a bit of a competition running for um, people to um, get Barbara O'Neill, who's an Australian naturopath. Um, she's very much, oh, I suppose, the flavour of the year, <laughs> flavour of the millennium, I guess. Um, she's, she's just turned 70. She was, she was um, basically had to leave Australia. Because the, I, I won't go too far off the track here, but she had to leave Australia because the medical industry were trying to shut her down because she was talking about dangerous things like cayenne pepper and Celtic salt and stuff ah. like that and <laughs> onions. It sounds like, it sounds like the um, orthodontist here in the States who started talking about how, you know, if we don't feed our babies Gerber baby food, and instead give them something to chew on, they won't need braces. Oh, mm -hmm. well, oh, we can't have that. Mm. <laughs> you know? Oh, it's the same old, his... same old, isn't it? They, you know, yeah, same they old took, story. They took the, the guy's license. This yeah. is the problem mm. with licensing. This is the problem yes. with centralized authoritarian control over thought. Exactly. Hello? Yeah, why are we getting these freaking licenses? Why are we yeah. giving them permission to say it's okay for us to do something? I mean, because, I mean, because we get heavied and hassled and usually it's hit the hip pocket. That's where it usually is. And it's like, well, how many of us are prepared to give up our house and, you know, warm bed at night to go and sleep in the gutter just to stand for a principle so that we can make no difference because everyone else has got their conveniences and they don't care about us. This is, so, you know. this is why, this is why I lean towards incompetence over malice even though i think there's a healthy dose of both but i think people just think well i've got a job to do and i'm gonna do it by god i don't give a fuck if the job is a good job or if it's accomplishing anything i'm just gonna do it because i'm getting paid and uh you know if, if you, you just, don't just following if, orders type thing yeah yeah and please don't take my job away no matter I've got what, to feed my family. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. You know, if somebody's got no responsibilities, yeah, okay, they've got a pretty good chance of being able to get away with standing up for their principles, and it's only them that's going to be inconvenienced. But when you've got, you know, family, extended family, you know, maybe a sick kid, a mother that's got to be looked after, whatever. The best slave. It's much harder, isn't it? Yeah, the best kind of slave, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Bingo. Bastards. All right. Uh, anyway, back carry. to the more positive stuff. <laughs> let's let's carry on. No, we're getting to some really heavy shit, and it's all connected, man. Because it's yeah. all about like, like they're they're keeping people out of the harmony, you know, with all this shit. What we need, what we need is harmony. Yes, 
Yes, we do. And can I just say one more thing? I'm going to put into the um, YouTube feed and also our private feed just a thing about the acoustic weaponry that's being used for weather modification. Okay. We won't get into that. I'm just going to put the link there and people can look at it if they want to. Right on. Cheers. Apparently an image of it. I like the one on the left because when you watch Hans Jenny's Cymatics documentary, that looks identical to the images of lycopodium powder on a metal plate with sound frequencies on it. This is like lycopodium powder that's creating supercluster galaxies. This is insane. So you start to get the, the, the idea of as above, so below. There's no end. This is what really disturbs me. The fact that we could put out fire with sound, and yet this has not been employed or used anyway. Why? Because it's not good for business. Remember, if we, the moment we stop the growth and the need for money, the entire global financial system collapses. This is just spectacular. These kids develop this little resonator that puts out a fire. Five seconds counted from the moment they put it down to the frying pan to when the fire is out. Five seconds. Imagine the fire trucks arriving at a building, burning building. The ladders go up and instead of fire hoses, a bunch of speakers get switched on and put out this frequency. That fire in the building will be out in literally a few, few seconds or a minute. The entire fire, everywhere, because it res it'll resonate right through the building. But that's not going to happen, because that's going to save a lot of money. Swarm robotics where it'd be attached to a drone, and that would be applied to forest fires or even building fires where you wouldn't want to sacrifice. Five seconds. Sound energizes the air we breathe, and this is how we actually oxygenate our bodies and our lungs and through our, our lungs, the blood in our veins and our arteries rather. Because as you breathe, the sound, that the air that you breathe makes a bloody noise and it goes into your lungs and it goes into the smaller and smaller orifices as it moves into your lungs. So it speeds up and speeds up and speeds up and it goes higher and higher and creates these frequencies. And it's the energy and the sound of this, the air that you breathe that actually energizes the oxygen in the air. So that oxygen is buzzing as it's moving faster and faster. By the time it reaches the alveoli and it goes from the alveoli into your artery, uh, in, into, sorry, from the lungs into the arteries, that oxygen in the air is buzzing and energized from the sound. And that's when it goes into your blood and it's used in the blood and it's stripped of the vibrating energy. And when it's stripped of the vibrating energy, you breathe it out again and it just repeats that cycle. And that's how we oxygen, uh, energize the oxygen that we breathe. That don't teach you this at medical school. In 2011, Luke Montagnier spontaneously generated DNA by exposing a tube of water Can we just stop there? frequencies that had the frequencies yeah, sorry. This is the guy I was talking about. Okay, mm. Luke Montagnier. Yes. So let's just pay attention. Just maybe back that up just ten seconds. But sorry to interrupt. But yeah, this oh, is the guy. Oh. So if you can find his information, um, I think some of it still is on YouTube. Probably because other people are keep reposting it. I don't know, but worth looking into. So just wanted to pull, you know, pull people's attention to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good. Phasing off a bit. Very good. Alveoli, and it goes from the alveoli into your artery uh, in, into. This is what Fido was talking about too. The alveoli, yeah. the the bronchi, the bronchioli, right? The shit that I'm abusing by smoking weed. 
but hey, keeps me on a certain frequency. Well, so. as long as you're breathing, you're abusing it because there's so much crap out there in the oxygen. Breathe in, breathe. breathe out. Aloha, malaho. If if Bob Marley like from the lungs, had any into the artery, um, sorry, veracity to his claims, then smoking weed might not be that bad. Yeah, well, hey. Well, one mean, yeah. we're also one, a pretty uh, pro yeah. pro tobacco podcast, yeah. right? <laughs> I, you know, I I only joke. I only joke. <laughs> Honestly, all like I don't know. Uh, the, uh, the tobacco and the cannabis. Organic. It uh, it keeps me yes, grounded. It keeps me difference. it keeps me on the earth. These these herbs, and I I hope to actually take a break because I've been hitting them hard for years, but. uh that's just between me and God. So I don't even feel the need to explain myself. No, you don't but, need to. Um, right. I saw something you. recently about the tobacco and oh, I wish I could remember what it exactly was, but it was that caught my eye because uh, it was something like menthol was completely outlawed. Menthol tobacco. Yeah, they're trying. They're try or maybe they did it. Um, they're trying to outlaw tobacco, but menthol particularly. Menthol was outlawed. cigarettes. Menthol cigarettes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they keep and trying, but it's pretty racist. It is pretty <laughs> racist. Yeah. All the black um, folks love the menthols. But not only that, there was some talk about um, that menthol tobacco. You know, not like the organic stuff, the good stuff, uh, was actually quite beneficial for. The COVID symptoms. So, sorry, did someone say something? We're banned. We're banned. Uh oh. Yeah. No. What can you not uh, say? You can't say the c word. Is that it? Well, uh, God I forbid that a that a herb, mint, let alone tobacco, oh, yeah. could yeah. have a beneficial uh, prophylactic effect. You know, God forbid. No, we can't talk about that, Stella. That's danger territory. I mean, come on. It's funny, it's I've so, got some really nice Egyptian uh, mint growing out the front. You know, it was really funny. I was tripping on mushrooms at Childerberg, and I got <laughs> and I got talking with some guys about mint, the family of plants, not just you know whatever mm -hmm. mint comes to mind, but the fact that you know catnip, basil, patchouli. You know, rosemary thyme uh all these are mints you know they're in the mint family and uh i i i got on like a I, again i was on mushrooms so i was excitable and i started <laughs> talking about how i was like you know i love cannabis i love tobacco and i love mint you know they all have a certain i the way i described it tripping i said they all got their own vibration yeah, yeah, right. they've got their own frequency for yeah. sure. So yeah, that and, makes sense. That's and that instinct. actually that spurred another guy into telling me how he loves salvia, which I've never like as a recreational drug. I you know I I've got clients with salvia growing all over their property. It's a very common ornamental shrub or herb, I should say, and uh, it'll make you trip balls some of it sure won't. we've got most that. of it won't most of it okay. won't. i have salvia and i don't have the right kind to do that okay it's one of well, those this guy like was poppies. telling me there there are poppies that are not hallucinogenic or open right or, or, or highly stuff. highly and there's also good. Yeah. poppies that are 
Um, Salvia yeah. is the same way. And I guess exactly. I was actually wondering when you were bringing up Mint, um, if Salvia would be part of that family. Yeah, of it's that. part yeah. of the family. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, his, and maybe oregano too, right? Oregano. It yep. is, yes, um, yes. Marjoram, yeah. Oregano. Well, oregano. Here's me talking American now. Lemon I'm bomb. talking American. <laughs> <laughs> Oregano. <laughs> yes, that is. Oh, yes, lemon balm. Oh, there's nothing more yeah. beautiful and refreshing than going out and grabbing some fresh lemon balm and just giving mm -hmm. it a bit of a crush up, chucking it in a hot glass of hot water. Mm -hmm. Bloody beautiful. Um, yeah, the salvia, I can attest something here. We have these, uh, I have mentioned them before, the blue banded bee. We call them blue bum bee because they're really cute. And um, they've got these little blue stripes on their bottom. And uh, they fly past the window doing their frequency. <laughs> but we've got this salvia growing out. Well, I planted it out the front of mum's window, her, her office, which she basically lives in doing her genealogy. And um, lots of different salvias. And it's really interesting to watch the bees, how they, like the really deep purple one, they seem to really like. But the more, I think it must be more sort of, I don't know, probably modernised or cultivated mid-purple one. They just they just don't get off on it at all. They go and sort of look at it and go, mm -hmm, nah, and then they go back to the other one. So it's really interesting. You got to figure that 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 frequency of a bee's wings, they're probably using that to assess their environment, right? Yeah, and like I said last week as well, they, they are buzz pollinators. So they're actually, uh, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. They're, um, it's a different way that they collect the pollen. They mm. use a, well, a hum, a buzz. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to look into them. But uh, So, yeah, just the difference between the two salvias. They're growing side by side. They sort of look pretty similar-ish, but the bees know, nah, not that one. I want that mm -hmm. one. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, let's, let's wrap this one up. And, uh, yeah. We're, we're almost there. That oxygen in the air is buzzing and energized from the sound. And that's when it goes into your blood and it's used in the blood and it's stripped of the vibrating energy. And when it's stripped of the vibrating energy, you breathe it out again. And it just repeats that cycle. And that's how we oxygen, uh, energize the oxygen that we breathe. That don't teach you this at medical school. In 2011, Luke Montagnier spontaneously generated... DNA by exposing a tube of water to certain sound frequencies that had the frequencies of a DNA in it and constituted DNA in, in, in an empty test tube. Wow. If you can create DNA in an empty test tube with sound, now you start understanding how we can start cloning other species and other creatures just by sound and vibration. And then obviously sonoluminescence, the star in a jar. God said, let there be light. A bubble with brilliant light inside a body of water. Is it possible that all the star systems that we see out there are actually just giant bubbles of light in a never-ending mass of water? I don't know. Well, does what does that sound like? I'm just thinking so, about uh, the moment of conception because it's floating in the placenta. There's a, a flash of light that happens at the moment of conception, apparently. Sorry, Bear. I'm, I'm happy that you took it in that direction um, because 
yeah, that is really cool. And I definitely believe in that. But I was also, I was going to take it in a darker direction of synthesizing DNA. That's a way to create or stage a uh, pandemic. If you can just mm. synthesize it in water, like just create it. I don't know. Is it, was it, was it based on a specific strand? What, what DNA yeah. was it? That's a good question. Um, might've just been a very simple strand of non whatever, anything DNA kind of is, makes is the argument. Well, it, well, it's, it, it behooves the question. Protein molecule. It behooves the question of um, the self self-organizing nature of life. I assume, you know, they say water. I mean, you would have to have amino acids, right? Isn't that what DNA is built out of? It's a Apparently protein so. chain, but it might it might need the amino acids as well. I see right? Fido. I see Fido. Yeah, Fido's out. here. She <laughs> can Fido's probably here. get it on this. She knows <laughs> yes. better than me. Yeah. Yes, it's amino acids. The there's there's four different ones. Right. So they say water. It would have to be like in a you know a solution of some kind, not just water. I mean, you can't just spontaneous spontaneously create amino acids, can you? I don't know that answer. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. But uh, just the the implications of what he just said are just mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to take it back to Aloha and uh, Mahalo just for a moment. Because, again, I just, I you know, it's like two sides, same coin. Mahalo comes from the heart. Aloha comes from the heart. Comes from our true authentic self. As we see that we are not separate from each other. We see that the earth is not separate from us. We see that the sky is not separate from us. We see that the water is not separate from us. This me changes into a we. This blessing, may you be in divine breath. Mahalo becomes easier and easier when we see the divine in others. Until then, Abraham Hicks suggests practice seeing it in others, practice seeing their divinity. Maybe practice saying mahalo and aloha. The Spirit hasn't said exactly what activation portal, light body, Merkaba, thingy we're doing on Tuesday. All right. I guess that's enough. I don't know. I just, 
I, you know, I kind of want to reinforce the idea of just breath and like presence, which is kind of what that whole video was trying to get at. But we only got so much time. (laughs) (laughs) So it's certainly interesting. Something that stuck out to me with the mahalo and the aloha, it's mm-hmm. it's almost also like there is a, and maybe it's just me, there is a, a sense of gratitude in those two greetings. And um, it's just, it's, we don't see enough of that in our society these days, just being grateful for what we have and grateful for some of the things that we don't have and just extending gratitude to each other you just don't see it. At least I haven't seen. I ha- I don't see it. So I try to put gra- incorporate gratitude into my everyday life as much as possible. And it it will change your perspective if you start being grateful for things instead of complaining about how this is going this way and how that's going that way. That is so true. So true. It's just, you know, we we get buried in our human ego from time to time because we're human. And uh, we tend to forget that sometimes. <laughs> Got to sort of stay on that level. And, you know, it's easy to sort of to talk about when you're just sitting there and thinking about it. But then when something actually comes and is in your face, <laughs> kind of it's like, sort of like, uh, well, you got to really evening, put it into practice, you know. that's the Kind of like this evening, you know, I had an opportunity to practice it and I did not. On my way um, to drop my son off this evening, um, a truck ran a yield sign. He did not yield and uh, almost sideswiped me. And instead of being grateful that he didn't hit us, I chose to get angry <laughs> and cuss him for all he was worth. So it gets it gets to all of us, you know, in in those little moments. So it is you definitely have to train yourself to not go for the anger response. Go for the gratitude response. I definitely would have cussed Absolutely. him for all he was worth as well. Um, but also, I I think that um, like saying grace before a meal is a good way to reset as far as that goes. I find so often that with my wife and I, we'll be like arguing and at each other a little bit. Like especially leading up to a meal, sometimes it's like, ah, we got to get dinner ready, blah, blah, blah. You know, take the puppy out, give her food. Like there's there's all kinds of stuff to do. And then we sit down and take a breath and give thanks. You know, yeah, that that's a nice little reset where we can kind of move on from there. <laughs> I, I love that you just brought that up because I was just about to bring up the fact that Barbara O'Neill also advocates very much for praying before your food. And it actually, it, it, she, in a nutshell, it's a frequency thing. It blesses the food to your body. Um, the gratitude is puts you in frequency, the, the food in frequency um somehow um so it's more than just you know a religious sort of say a prayer and do the right thing it's like there's a reason it's just like when jesus says you know just live the way i do basically or you know just do this whatever when you know if you live like jesus it's better for you it's better for the world everything else if you do these things it's better for you like literally (laughs) it's not just theoretically or metaphorically it's actually so yeah um, there's reasons for gratitude. It's it's obviously a frequency as I'm thinking more and more when we look at, into these things. It's a frequency level. Just like that f- chemical table that we looked at, the swirly one, 
you know, mm. it's different frequencies for chemicals and every, every emotion is a chemical. I mean, it, we are made up of chemicals. So, you know, sadness is a chemical. Happiness is a chemical. Well, we're made up, yeah, of elements, compounds, chemicals, and, uh, and a little, some little something else, little magic, I would say. Um, but I'm thinking we're wrapping up here. You know, we don't need to go six hours, even though we have like a month in a row. We keep going crazy long, but I don't know. I've like, I think I've hit what I've wanted to hit. And um, as usual, we have no final answers, but we've got questions. You know, we've got the big question, you know, what the fuck? <laughs> but I do have one more thing to share with y'all if you're so willing Go a, little, ahead. a little more sound and uh this is just for fun it's a lie we went to the moon they played us from the start let me see a photo of earth that's not just graphic art our overlords Showed their hand and NASA can kiss my ass. They filled our heads with wrong so long we can't discern the truth. Trying to wake these normies up feels like the tooth fairies pulling a tooth. Our overlord. Can't tell the truth. Our overlords went overboard. Lied to you. That's Hello. <laughs> Some great musical prowess there. <laughs> Oh, hey, That's Dylan, brilliant. you're you're hopping in right at the end. We're wrapping her up. Uh, yeah, sorry to catch y'all at the last second there. Hey, no problem, man, no problem. Uh, tell us about yourself real quick. Uh, I'm going to turn your mic down because <sighs> you're coming in hot. Sorry about that. That's all good. How's this? Testing, testing. Better. One, good. two, three. All right, copy. Uh, name's Dylan Correa. I'm friends with Rob Brisky, uh, or as I like to call him, Crazy Uncle Rob. He's like another father to me. Yeah, we we call him by that. Yeah, yeah, same here. Yeah. He's uh, he's an absolute asset to humanity, and the world would be a lesser place without him. And, <laughs> I agree. And any anyone he considers a friend, so I could say the yeah. same for you all as well already. Oh yeah. Uh, him and me I'm glad met. He's, uh, glad he's on that? our side. Just glad he's on his it, on our side. Yeah. Oh, you, you always want him to be on your side at any point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I met him when I was still living in Albuquerque, New Mexico about two years, three years ago. And we were mutual friends with Eddie Aragon, the the one and only conservative radio talk show host in central New Mexico. And him and me would destroy libtards together in his comment section and I think one night Rob was like, hey, why don't you come over, check out the shop? So I did, and it just turned into years of shit-talking libtards and working on cars together, going out drinking. And uh, him and me are very similar. 
in in many ways um we both got kind of fucked over by the army we're both from the south side of chicago we both lived in the same town on the south side of chicago but at different times in history it's a little town called stager illinois and uh yeah i'm out in northeast pennsylvania these days just living on 100 percent va disability but i'm also a volunteer fire police officer and firefighter and oh hell yeah nice. it's a total blast it's sketchy as fuck at times but it's a total blast and uh it's a good way to serve god right. amen yeah thank you for coming in <laughs> yeah well, thanks yeah. for having me so. well we you know we don't have to wrap up i do have a little more <laughs> something i we can don't. show you but you know i know bear bear said he might not be able to stick around all night i you know i'm happy to give you an out if you need one brother you know I, it might be a good time if i don't want to ruin my week <laughs> hey well it's good to see you man i've uh i've appreciated being here this has been awesome and always dylan sorry not to uh connect with you more i'm sure you're awesome but yeah this has been fun and i think i might take the opportunity since you offered it yeah well and the same goes for fido but bear always a pleasure always a pleasure Thanks yes. for having me. Um, yeah. TheBearSnare.com and uh, love you guys and all that. Yep. Love you love guts. Your guts. I look forward to listening <laughs> to it back. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, cool, Ido, you in, you in it for the long haul or do you need to bail? I probably need to bail. <laughs> no worries. We've been going. So. All right. So um, I guess I'll go ahead and do mine real quick. Uh, yeah. You can uh, catch me on uh, on uh, on X, on Twitter, uh, that powers lady, and uh, my music. You can catch it on Bandcamp. It's phytophiliac.bandcamp.com, um, and you can, I'm also on SoundCloud and uh, major streaming platforms. I'm still working on my next album. It's kind of come to a standstill at the moment. I have a couple of other irons in the fire but i'm i haven't completely given up on it yet so it's coming hopefully and hopefully in april <laughs> i can have some more news on that front awesome you're churning them out well done mm. and i also just wanted to give a little um nod to phyto as well for providing the bed track for drew miss you're missing the point our mate drew in Victoria here in Australia. Um, she He's got a new theme song to his podcast and that was Fido's Bed and then he finished it off with a few edits here and there and um, it's it came together really well. So good one. Mm. <laughs> good one, I, mate. I, I, I had fun doing it. It was, it was, I enjoy doing that. So maybe I'll ought to extend that out to other people if they want. And, it's fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. So y'all have a great evening. I'll see y'all later. Yeah, you take care. Love you guys. All right. Well, let me let me throw throw this at you. We'll see what Dylan has to say, uh, but we've got a little more of one of our clips here to play. So here we go. Of vibrations, rhythms, and how the and, and they could change the whole concept of a nation by music. I mean, the Germans used the music from Wagner. And, and it inspired, and America has music that inspires the nation because there is some kind of a mathematical science to it. There's a science to putting music together. And of course, in Hollywood, you have what is called programmed music. 
in a movie, when something evil is going to happen, you get a certain kind of, of music. When something is going to be funny and silly and, and to be laughed at, you get that kind of music behind it. So it's programming you, your mind with music so that you are inspired to get the idea out of the movie. So inspiration is not part of what the brain does. Inspiration comes from outside the brain. I believe that our the human family, the human people on the earth, their brains are a computer. We're an incredible computer. It's alive. And that computer runs on wiring. And we're told that we, our blood vessels and our nerves are miles and miles of nerve endings in our body. That's the wiring for the computer to all the body, to control the body. The brain needs to be able to send messages out to certain nerves for you to do certain things. And so the brain is a computer, and I believe that what we call God is some kind of a, for a lack of a better term, some sort of a Wi-Fi unit. You can have a hundred different computers in a room, and they're all on a one Wi-Fi unit, which means all 100 computers can be doing 100 different things, tuning into different different places and doing different things, and they're all getting it from one source, from a Wi-Fi unit. And so something is guiding our destiny. Something out there is guiding our thinking. And if you've ever seen a flock of birds, large, large flocks of birds with thousands of birds, and you see them all flying in one direction, and instantly, in, a, in an absolute one-second instant, they all turn, all the birds turn and go a different way. And they all then flip back and turn and go a different way. How come all of the birds knew to turn at that very one second point and they all turned and went a different way together like the fish do? We call it schools of fish. And I've seen it where the fish are thousands of fish and they're all sailing along together and instantly, all of a sudden, they all go in a different direction. How is that possible? One. All right, I'm pausing. Um, you know, Dylan, you're coming in, like I said, at the very tail end of a very long conversation. We've been talking about electricity and magnetism, light and sound, uh, people. We've been talking about star forts. We've been talking about all kinds of crazy shit here. Uh, but what what would you have to say here? Uh, it's pretty evident when you do see the program music because when you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, anything the world throws at you just comes off as cringe, dry, and soulless. My favorite example is probably uh, probably East Germany. Anytime you listen to the you know, military parade music and stuff. It's just so austere and simple, and it's there's not a hint of a soul in the music. And so that's a good example. Uh, anything you see generally in commercials these days, it's all happy-go-lucky, shit-eating, grin, beep-bop music, and it's extremely cringe, and you just know, like, wow, people who get into this are being brainwashed by the second. Anything Hollywood puts out, it, not even just music, movies too, are all just cringe garbage, and it all ties in together. And a lot of the music they use, and 
<clears throat> I know I'm probably sounding dark with all this, but it's all just extremely cringe and soulless and uh, doesn't. No, I, doesn't I, I totally. Sound good. I, no, I, 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 I agree. I've, You're in I've, the right place, brother. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, sounds like it. Yeah. Well, I've said before, like anything that feels awkward or feels cringe is like unnatural, you know. Yes. And there's a reason it feels that way. Like it's it's dissonant instead of resonant. Mm-hmm. It's not. We've been talking a lot about like harmonics and just the idea of resonance and harmony and being on the right frequency. You know, like, mm-hmm. it, and if it feels off, it's off, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember a long time ago, they used to sort of call it biochemistry and all that sort of thing, biorhythms. Um, but it's just frequencies, really. I mean, isn't it? It's just that's sort of another word for it, I guess. It's mm-hmm. like the old science, the science of the day, 80s. And not mm. everything from the world has that same frequency of cringe. I mean, after this, I'll probably smoke some weed and blast some corn or Slipknot, and it'll sound good and resonate. <laughs> and but that's As, you know, that's people expressing how they feel, longing for God, I think, and just reaching for everything they can in the world, and it's not filling that hole inside of them. And in a way, and when the melodies are right, it's a beautiful thing. It's a sad thing, but it's a beautiful thing. But that's just so much different than a Pfizer commercial with its cringe beep boop music with a freaking uh, with a mandolin being played awkwardly and some asshole telling me a to... ukulele yeah. the, the freaking ukulele yeah. music man <laughs> yeah or the piano arpeggio well, 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 just fucking shoot me. <laughs> well, you got to wonder, like, it must resonate with somebody. Otherwise, they wouldn't do with it. With simpleton idiots. Yeah, yeah. With no spiritual presence in their lives. Well, and actually, actually, at the, same, them. at the same time, I've, I've heard that, like, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical ads are not so much to actually sell the drug. Um, they're more to control the, the media itself. You know, mm-hmm. like they don't really care if the ads work as long as they can tell what, you know, what can be you know, said and what can't be. Well, it's usually yeah, a it's, pharmaceutical commercial then followed by the news. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, all, it's all a big club niche and, and every commercial reflects it. And I, I think it's trying to draw people into feel like. Yes, this is the acceptable group, whatever the television says. This is the acceptable group to be with. If you call anything about it out, you're a crazy conspiracy theorist. And you're you're not the cool kids cringe club. And, Manufacturing uh, reality. Yeah. Ask your doctor about Ozempic. Ask your doctor if this new untested product that yeah. will butt rape your body from the inside out is right for you. <laughs> <laughs> You feel like a good butt rape. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Do let's you feel like a good soul fucking. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's carry on here. Um, yeah. There's more, but not much more. Uh, I keep saying that, but like, yeah, the forum is what the forum is. We're we're probably gonna call it quits here after this one, though. I gotta get going soon anyway. Take a shower and get this horse shit off me before we get another well, fire call or rescue call. So. Well, it's been fun to meet you. 
in any event Likewise. you're welcome back you're welcome back yeah definitely i'm glad yeah. i have the link now rob's been encouraging me to join up yeah. but i've just been well it's busy. a it's a it's a new link every week so okay keep a lookout copy that join cool. the forum all right let's uh trudge we'll on do. and we'll and we'll call it quits right after incredible story about how the brain communicates with the heavens and the heavens communicate with you and we know that the planets and the sun and the moon affect your brain and the planets all have a resonant frequency and each one of those planets when you were born affected your mind when you were born you came out of your mother into the world and the sun has a profound electrical feel on the earth that is causing incredible stuff to happen. Our weather, the moon affects people. It affects the female. It affects her uh, her periods. Uh, once a month is caused by the moon. The moon pulls the oceans of the world. We know that the moon affects the oceans. Why? Because they're water, and the moon affects water. This is why your body is like 76% water. So how does the moon affect you at the full moon? Well, it causes you to get silly and crazy, sometimes really crazy. So we call you a lunatic. Why? Because the moon is affecting your blood. It's affecting your brain. The vibrations in your mind are being affected by the sun, the moon, Mars, Jupiter. And so women are from Venus and men are from Mars, meaning our minds operate differently because of the way we are born and, and who we are and the vibrations in the brain. It's a very big subject about inspiration. And, and the inspiration comes from out there. When Nikola Tesla was in his late 80s, very old and he was given a big awards dinner in New York where the world was thanking him for all the incredible things that he had given to the world. And, uh, and he said, Nikola Tesla spoke to the audience, and he said, I have to tell you how I got my ideas to do what I've done. He said, every evening before bed, I will put a, a, a notepad on the little table next to my bed with a pen or a pencil. And he said, and every morning when I wake up, there's a written invention on the pad. Somebody comes into my room at night and writes down an invention. And, and the next morning I get up and it's all written out for me. And so I just go to my laboratory and follow the instructions and I invented radio or I invented uh, alternating current or I made this invention or that invention and today Nikola Tesla has lit the world and given us radio and, and all kinds of wonderful things this man gave to the world but he said he was inspired by someone writing it down when he was sleeping and so that's inspiration to inspire comes from the word spire to like perspire inspire and so, spire is to breathe together. Breathing is spire. And so, someone was breathing into him their ideas and coming from somewhere else. Well, that was one point I wanted to make about inspiration, is it doesn't necessarily come from you. It comes from out there. 
you know, um, I remember in high school, I was bored 99.99% of the time, but I took AP biology and I did a project attempting to, um, measure and quantify the amount of transpiration that a plant would do. That was our project. We, we attempted to do it and it was ambitious and we failed, but we got an A because it was clever. And we, you know, took an aquarium and we wrapped it in plastic and we put, you know, a fern inside of there. And we attempted to measure the oxygen and the, the carbon dioxide and, and again, we failed miserably because it was a very ambitious thing to try to do. But transpiration, I mean, spire, I, I never, I, I, I'm no linguist. I don't know the etymology, but that's interesting that it's to breathe, right? There's all different ways of breathing. Trans- Respiration, yeah, trans- transpiration. Um, yeah. There's more, I'm sure, but. And also, isn't it interesting that the little pointy thing, like an antenna on the top of a building, is called a spire hmm. because it's drawing inspiration from the energy, from the universe, atmosphere, whatever you want to call it, ether, God. Um, yeah, we expire, we inspire. Mm-hmm. It's all a cycle. Well, I mean, imagine if inspiration and all that is just like oxygen, breathing it in, whatever, if we were p- perhaps less polluted. not And I'm not just talking about on a chemical level or biolo- biological level. I'm talking also on a mental and f- physical and, sp- I mean, spiritual level with all the visual pollution and et cetera that gets in our way. It's sort of like poison, toxin, um, frequency toxin, <laughs> visual toxin, not just chemical toxin. With food it's hard to it's hard to get into a place where there's no signs or advertising or something you've got to like you've got to go a long way away these days <laughs> i mean i went for a walk in the gully the other day and it was noisier than where i'd left my house and there was mowers and dogs barking and you know another mower <laughs> and another leaf blower i was like oh man what have you got to do to get some peace these days it's uh, not easy to find. You ain't wrong. And uh, it's part of why I love rural northeast Pennsylvania here. It gets eerily silent at times. And it's a nice change from Chicago and Albuquerque, especially with the internet frequencies. I tell you, anytime I go into a big city these days, I feel like I'm having a heart attack. Like quite literally. And it's it's from all the Wi-Fi and all the signals and all the internet, mm. all yeah. the man-made energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The pollution. A lot of well, some people are more sensitive to it than others as well. How long have you been out of the city areas uh, where that would be, be normal? Yeah, no, it's going on four years in May. Right. So you'd notice it now. Yeah. Now, anytime I go to visit my grandma in Chicago or take a trip out to LA or whatever, it's crippling. Well, I'll, I'm I'll, like, I'll, I got to get out of here. I'll confirm. I, I hate Chicago and I hate LA. 
Mm-hmm. I've been to quite a few cities and certain ones rub me the wrong way. You know, yeah. I don't I don't really ever want to go to New York. I'll say that. I'd like to visit New York City once. I've never been to New York City, but I know it's going to be yeah. just a major anxiety stress shit show. And it, and it's not just the internet signals and stuff. It's it's the spiritual state in these places. Yeah. You can feel the spiritual lostness and and just no direction and just worldliness and when you're sensitive to it it makes you sick to your stomach right right i do think it's a matter of being like an like empath you know empathetic person uh it hits you harder you know some people can tune it out but you know i can't yeah i suppose if you're living in amongst it all the time it's just you don't even see it it's just the blinkers are on but when you've been away from it for a while yeah, I found that. I mean, I'd been away from the city for, what, three years or something and oh, even longer really, but officially. And um, then I went to Brisbane and just, wow, did I really notice exactly what you're just saying. You know, it wasn't just the fact that I noticed a lot of homeless and that. I could really feel that, the oppression. There were some crazy, crazy things and it was almost like you'd turn a corner to a new block and there'd be a different vibration, feeling, emotion, whatever, presence. And uh, sure enough, then you'd see something a little bit up the road going on, like you know somebody writhing around on the ground or something. So yeah, I didn't. I couldn't get out of that place fast enough. Yeah. yeah. Every corner is a new brand of cringe ukulele music in the cities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the hopeful buskers who probably make more than we do per week. Well, so I actually i I worked, uh, and actually I continue to work with the stagehands on occasion in indianapolis like i i know these guys they're like hey come out help us set up for concerts the pay's good you know you can join the union if you want to right and uh i think i'm like not officially in the union because i haven't worked enough but that's whatever neither here nor there but one of them was telling me you know they climb up in the rigging in like the the arenas and shit And he was like, he was telling me how he was up there and he was right next to the 5G like thing inside of like the big Coliseum, right? And, uh, and how he felt like I, you know, he was basically getting microwaved. He said he felt awful. He felt fucking awful. And they had to, they had to actually like make a point to shut all that shit off whenever they were up there working. So there's something going on, you know, it's not, it's not visible, but it's there. Oh, and God forbid that person report it to someone. God forbid he'd be like, yeah, they have to shut off the 5g when we're up there. It fucks us up. Yeah. He said he felt like his brain was getting scrambled, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of stories like that. I remember hearing one about a year ago of a, a fellow who was, um, he often used to climb up to a tower that was between two hospitals. And yeah, he used to feel like he was literally cooking. And apparently the hospitals, like they have really, really strong towers for some reason. I guess it must be to run certain equipment or whatever. But um, so yeah, he had to stop doing what he was doing. I can't quite remember. I think I think it was a bit of a doomy end in the end, but um, it was like, yeah, lots and lots of stories like that of technicians 
who talk about it or, you know, people talking about their father who was a technician and he's since passed and all that sort of thing. It's like, ugh, this stuff's everywhere. I mean, the first place they put it was the schools and stuff. Ugh, makes me sick. Well, I'm thinking um, maybe we ought to take a lesson from the crows. Okay. Check, check this out. I promise this is my last thing and it's real quick. <clears throat> Hi, Crow Scientist here. So first of all, let me just say 10 out of 10, no notes. This is peak. Speaking of cringe, she's a little bit cringe, but bear with it. For the listener, these crows are throwing down what are called spikes that are on buildings, trying to keep the birds off the building, right? <laughs> Anywho, I'll continue. Crow behavior, and I love this for them. But beyond that, let's talk brass tacks. What are they actually doing in this video besides crimes and just generally being perfect? So this behavior is nothing new in corporate land. In fact, last year in 2023, a paper came out documenting in three different countries the phenomenon of various corvids, including carrion crows and common magpies, removing bird spikes for the purpose of using them in their nest construction. And the really cool thing was that in the magpies, it, it didn't just end at them like incorporating them into the nest. It actually seemed like they were potentially using the spikes functionally with the spikes turned outwards as if to use them for their intended purpose of warding away other birds. Now, is that what's going on in this video? Well, so that hasn't been documented in American Crows so far, and I'm pretty sure this was taken in California. But the real issue is that in California, the earliest documentation I've ever seen of crows initiating nesting, where they would start to collect nesting material, is the first couple of weeks of March. So we're just a little bit too early, I think, for that to be what's going on here. Though, if you ever see that, you better send me that video because I'm going to lose my marbles. So if they're not collecting the material, why else might they be stripping these bird spikes off? The best like functional explanation I can come up with is that there's something hiding under them that they like to eat, maybe bugs. I don't know how they install these, if they use adhesive, like sometimes animals like to eat adhesive, but that doesn't seem like what's happening if you watch the video. They're not removing them and then spending time in the spots and appearing to consume anything. So I think that they're just removing them because they don't like them uh, or it's fun to be destructive. I mean, I think we all feel that spirit sometimes. And they can really, that's really the explanation They're, they can. And so they are good enough. Good enough explanation for me. Um, they don't like them. They probably, they probably don't resonate. They probably think they're bullshit. <laughs> the animals know. Yeah. Yeah. Just listen to the goddamn crows and, you know, quit putting spikes on the buildings, you know? Yeah, I think the problem is that we're assuming that animals are dumber than they actually are. Um, they've seen that humans get some sort of success out of using these spikes, so fight fire with fire, you know. Why not take it on? It's progress. Progressive birds. Super progressive. <laughs> They'll all be wearing lipstick soon. Yeah, and and uh, the pink hats. Well, crows... Find their feathers pink. Crows are pretty damn smart, but I don't know if they can put on lipstick. Then again, uh, you know, I wouldn't put it past them. No. So, yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. Any any final thoughts before we call it a night here? 
uh, fuck the globalist new world order. Yeah, agreed. Everyone, uh, let God bring you a person if if you haven't found them already, and marry them and be fruitful and multiply, and let it be a big f you to the globalists. Hey yo, <laughs> nice. And and buy tons of guns and ammo if you can, unless you're in <laughs> Australia. Sorry, homie. Buy one mm. for me. Yeah. I'll Just scratch my name you. into the barrel, will you? <laughs> yeah. Victoria well, from Australia. Dylan, this one's Dylan. from me, and this one's from Stella. <laughs> Dylan, do you have like a show or anything you want to plug? Um, not really. I have a YouTube. I've done uh, political videos, video game reviews. I upload a lot of video game footage here and there. Mostly World of Tanks, GTA Online. I upload shooting footage. Uh, my TikTok has tons of uh, fire department operations videos. Um, Sweet. TikTok name, Dylan Manuel Correa. Everything else is Arklay Ishimura. A-R-K-L-A-Y underscore I-S-H-I-M-U-R-A. And uh, yeah, feel free to add me on Facebook or wherever. Hell yeah. Stella Q. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, Union of the Unknowns, I guess, is sort of where you'd probably find me, but not very much lately. Mostly here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thanks for having me again. Of course, of course, of course. All right, well, Mike, you know, I'm always, as usual, Mike the Polymath, coming at you from the Easy Peasy Workshop. And... Uh, and Rob yeah. from Black Labs. Rob Black. from Black Labs. Shout out to Ando, Burn Babylon Burn, who had some good news, but I'm not going to break it. Uh, we're going to let that lie. <laughs> Excuse me, let that lie. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Ashley, a friend. You are always missed when uh-huh. you're not here. Yeah. Drizzle. Drizzle. All the all the people. OG Drew. Dad Bod, Drew. Drew. <laughs> We've got a good, we got a good bunch of what the fuckers. I'll say that much. <laughs> There's always somebody here to fuck the water. Well, love you guts. Love you guts. Hey, thanks for having me here. Good to meet you guys. God bless. Pleasure. Pleasure. You too, Dylan. Talk soon.